my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis. A Dance with Dragons is the longest of the books so far, taking bets on whether it'll stay that way. It's also the darkest and least understood, thanks to being the most recent. It's the culmination, also so far, of George's style honed over the course of the prior books and the rest of his career. It has the extended length of A Storm of Swords, the expanded pacing of A Feast for Crows. It brings POVs together like A Clash of Kings and has the setup of A Game of Thrones. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also send questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets. Facebook, Flick, Discord, and Slack are what we have. Check out the Isle of Faces. That's Joe Buckley's podcast. His Valarioritas tandem episodes are called Scraps and Scrolls. He expands on a lot of the topics we raise here, as well as diving into some aspects of the chapters you may not have considered and that we may not have covered here. Well worth filling out your Valarioritas Val experience by heading over to the Isle of Faces. Also, check out Nina Friel on Tumblr. That's Good Queen Alley with one L. And of course, Tumblr has no E. So, you know, the spellings are a little different here, but that just makes it cooler. Her thoughts are throughout every episode of Valar Redis as well, and they're quite excellent. Every once in a while, maybe once or twice in a year, we like to remind you all that we have a partnership with Studio Headphones, Studio Sweden. I've been using Studio Headphones for, I don't even know now, four years maybe? I wear them at the gym. I wear them at home. They are my go-to headphones. So I'm very happy with them. So it's fun to continue to support them and be sponsored by them. We have a discount code, Westeros10. Get you 10% off any purchase through them, studiosweden.com. Their newest model is the Tolv, T-O-L-V. It's in the wireless earbud uh, make uh, and style. It is Bluetooth 5.0, has 15 meters of range. And it's really cool because the, the case charges it. So you can actually charge it four times with the case without having any sort of uh, plug-in. So that's really good. Really, really powerful, really fun, and really well-made. We've been using them a long time. So highly yeah. recommended. Studio Sweden. Check yeah, out. I don't normally wear earbuds at all. I like over-the-ear headphones, but they actually fit really well in my ear. I yeah, enjoyed I it. I haven't had a lot of experience with them, but they, I was surprised too with how well they Yeah, I've been just putting in. one in, you yeah. know, to listen to stuff. Yeah, we're in that era now where they're becoming more common. So I, I haven't found any that fit really well, but these, these I, you, you remember I was sitting there doing this, like shaking my head up and down, and I was like, hey, it stayed, all right. So today we have three chapters. If you missed it, we're doing three chapters this week and next week, in part because... The two longest chapters in the entire book are back-to-back, -back, and they are the third chapter today and the first chapter next week. So I didn't want them to be part of the same episode because of that length. That's what she said. Today, first, we have The Lost Lord. The gang meets the Golden Company, a.k.a. Sail West, Young Griff. The Windblown. The gang meets the Tattered Prince, a.k.a. Dornish spies like us. And The Wayward Bride. Asha Greyjoy versus Middle Little a.k.a. the one where Stanish ambushes the Ironborn again. This selection of chapters has an unmistakable pattern in the names, meaning the actual names, not the ones we made up, of course. There's patterns in those too, but that's not what I'm referring to. This is, of course, Connington's first chapter of two in A Dance with Dragons. He'll have more in The Winds of Winter, most certainly, but we don't know how many. Though his death is assured, 
most likely thanks to Grayscale. I'm going to guess he lives a while longer because he has Grayscale. That needs time to play out. And of course, so does the rest of the plot with his ward, whom he's now our eyes and ears for. It's a little bit like Jamie. When Jamie's hand was cut off, it almost ensured he would live a little while longer, at least if not a lot, long while longer. Asha is in a similar spot as a result of her chapter. No permanent damage to her body, nothing so bad as grayscale, but a busted ankle and imprisonment is going to keep her in place for a while. She becomes a key northern witness, though now she's sharing some of that with her own brother, Theon. He's the one set to be executed, though, so she might actually survive the whole series. We'll see. Him, I'm a lot less... <laughs> I wouldn't bet on him. <laughs> Either way, I think she has to escape the North eventually due to the setup that we see in this chapter, either due to the story of Torgon the Latecomer, if that's predictive at all, or for other reasons that we'll get into. One chapter last book, three in this one, she's got four total with more to come in the next book as well. Quentin, however, he's got a total of four, and that's where that total will stay. So it's definitely a different feel today with these characters to this point only, Asha, John Connington, and Quentin have a grand total of five chapters. And by and in total, their entire totals, 10. Tyrion has more in every book, minus A Feast for Crows, for example. Now, Asha's story is a little harder to peg overall, apart from the likelihood of a stint as an observer. But with Connington, he's about to be right in the thick of it. By the next book, he'll be a, a part of all the POVs near King's Landing like Cersei, Jamie, Urien, and Danny and Tyrion stories as well, and probably some other POVs, Barristan, who knows. So he'd be going from kind of isolated to being in the thick of it. Quentin's is more of a micro story that's more clearly a part of the larger Daenerys story. Like Connington, there's a close-up look at important sellsword companies whose stories revolve around her, but they don't revolve around each other, though it's set up to look that the Windblown and Golden Company might the allies or enemies. By Connington's next chapter, they're in Westeros and the Windblown are still in Slaver's Bay. So the, if they do ever come in contact or battle, it's not going to be soon. While Connington and Illyrio and Varys might still hope for a marriage to Daenerys for young Griff slash Aegon, so does Quentin. <laughs> he clearly won't, but he will get Dragonfire. Aegon, well, it might go about the same for him. Marriage, no. Dragonfire, maybe. So there's a lot of setup for people who will eventually burn. <laughs> Asha fits right in with that. She's going to watch men burn in this book, thanks to the man who captures her in this chapter. How about George writing it so that Aegon burns right around the same time Shireen does? Asha might even be witness to that. Now, to be clear, I don't think Asha is going to burn herself. I guess it's possible. But she's going to see a good bit of that herself. So... Asha's story also will likely collide with Danny's. That's kind of where a lot of us are at as far as long-term predictions, and that would be a while from now if it happens. We also have a lot of expected plans coming to nothing today. Quentin's plan to sneak over Daenerys comes to nothing while completely working out because <laughs> the wild but actually quite understandable side-switching by the Tattered Prince. Asha decides she wants to undo the king's mood and also decides she won't be captured alive. Well, she may yet accomplish the undoing of the king's mood, but she's not going to be doing that while sitting very much alive in captivity, which she said she wouldn't be. 
And it starts right away with John Connington. He expected to meet up with the Golden Company only to find it was, quote, encamped three miles south of town, well north of where he had expected them. Then he expected to bring Aegon to Daenerys, only to find that she, quote, remained a world away. He brought Tyrion along at Illyrio's insistence, mining him for dragon knowledge and planning on using him for other things later, only to have him escape, with John having no idea where he went, but suspecting he's plotting some new infamy. Perhaps, quote, best of all, Griff planned on not trusting Tyrion and curses himself for letting down his guard. Yet he completely falls for Aegon's plan to head west, which was actually, unbeknownst to him, Tyrion's idea. The Lost Lord. The gang meets the Golden Company, a.k.a. Sail West, young Griff. Connington is a testament to how great the world building in this story is. Immediately, this character in his first chapter has an enormous amount of conflict that we don't really need explained to us because we already understand all the portions of the world that set it up. All the things that he's upset about, we mostly have an understanding of. Now, it's going to get deeper, and we're going to have a better understanding of his conflict and the reasons why he's in the spot he's at. For example, we didn't fully grasp how important the Battle of the Bells was until his chapters. This helps with that, and his next one will help with that even more. But we understand Robert's Rebellion overall pretty well. So while we meet a whole bunch of new characters in the Golden Company, all the people and places in his memory on the Westerosi side are known to us to some degree. The people he's mad at, the people he dealt with. He thinks of Rhaegar and a little bit of Ares and mentions Arthur Dane. These are people we know already. He fits right into what's already there. We're not being introduced to a whole lot of completely new concepts or, or characters. And ditto the characters on the Shy Maid and Aegon himself, who Griff starts off with. They are a little bit known to us. We're learning more as we go, but this hits the ground running. There's something I like a lot about this one. It's, it's a new character who we already know, but it'll be similar to when we get Barristan chapters later. It's kind of a new device George is introducing at this point in the story. Or maybe not a new device, but it works differently because we've had so much setup. We're so deep in the story now. It's not like a Game of Thrones where every character is new, every character has to be explained. We're experts by now, right? <laughs> I'm not sure I would include Melisandre's chapter in this qualification of new but not new, yet not lacking explanation. Because in her case, there's so much supernatural exposition, and her backstory is not well known prior to us getting in her head. But there is a chance Melisandre and Connington's stories cross over in regards to the Grayscale plot. We'll see. On reread, I love how perfect this, this opener is for him. It should not have taken this long, Griff told himself as he paced the deck of the Shy Maid. He's pacing because he's second-guessing himself. He's stressed out. He's just anxious. He's got a lot of things going on, a lot of pressure. And he's probably never been a very relaxed guy in the first place, even when he didn't have lots of stresses and trying to resolve long-running conspiracies, things like that. But so much of it is also his responsibility. Unlike the rest of the group, they have specific tasks. His is more of a leadership role, or not more of, it is a leadership role. And that comes with more responsibility, 
some of which he maybe doesn't manage very well internally. And also, he's just lonely. That's just a big part of it. He seems angry. Well, he is angry. And that adds to his loneliness because, well, that's not the most compelling characteristic to draw people to you. But earlier in his life, think about this, it makes it even sadder. He was a popular up-and-comer, great fighter, friend of the prince, looked like he was going to have a big place at court for a long time. Just a popular, successful guy. His life was going in the right direction in pretty much all ways. But then all of a sudden, he's an exile who people think he drank himself to death and stole from his brothers in the Golden Company. Of course, neither of those last two things are true, but they're widely believed. So there's lots of shame he's heaped on too. So that just adds to this feeling of loneliness, this feeling of uh, trying to recapture what was once his, what was great, and is now not so great. So even though we hit the ground running with this chapter by surrounding him with familiar or previously set up events, he carves out a niche by being unique in several ways. He has insight on characters we badly want to know more about, like Rhaegar and King Aerys and perhaps Varys and Illyrio and Lamar, and figures from the Golden Company. He's our only gay male point of view and our only POV with a terminal disease, well, that we know of, <laughs> looking at you, Tyrion. Who knows who else is coming with that too? With Grayscale on the rise, that, that this may not be true for very long. Now, if you're not clear on his orientation, well, think about how he refers to Rhaegar. He thinks of him as my silver prince, not the silver prince, my silver prince. But really, George has been pretty explicit about it. At first, he just said one of the POVs is gay, and we, we had to figure it out. But it, that didn't, it wasn't very hard to figure that out once, uh, once the clue was there. Being given the mission of young Griff and this mini family on the Shy Maid likely dealt with some of that feeling, but not all of it. John is still lonely on this boat because, well, he's the one who knows things and a lot of people aren't in on some of the secrets. Although he doesn't realize how he's also not in on some of the secrets. That's a different level of the sadness here than how much he's being manipulated because of his love for his silver prince. Being in his position, he thinks he might have to betray people that were close to him for the greater good of this mission. And I don't know how much that truly bothers him. This is something about Connington that is a little maybe problematic. Maybe not even a little, maybe a lot problematic due to how far he's willing to go. This mission is everything to him. It's his life. There's this one pivotal event in his personal history where he thinks everything turned. He laments how different his life would be if the Battle of the Bells had played out the other way. He blames himself deeply. Everything seems to come back to that moment. And this isn't the first time we heard about the Battle of the Bells. We actually get a good summary of it back in A Storm of Swords from Harwin, of all people, telling Arya about it. But this is a different perspective. We got the winner's perspective over there. And he wasn't exactly a high-ranking official, so he wasn't privy to the plans. He was you know, a soldier. In the, in the crowd, one of many. But Connington, of course, was the hand of the king at the time. So very big uh, difference in the level of detail and the type of storytelling that could come from someone who was there. He thinks how he would have killed. He could have killed Robert or maybe should have burned the town. Now, of course, not all these things are sure things. He Maybe Robert would have just killed him. <laughs> but who knows? <laughs> 
So on top of all this, it's really quite something. He has all this almost 20 years of pressure built up, putting his life's goals all into this one quest. Now a ticking clock, a timer has been added to the whole thing. Not only has he pinned everything on getting Aegon on the Iron Throne, but it's got a time limit. And he doesn't know how much time he has. At the end, he's like, one year, two years, five. That's a pretty wide range. (laughs) And I don't think he's thought this through very well because it's not just going to be one day he wakes up and, oh, that's that. No, we've seen a little bit of how Grayscale works. And this man is going to have trouble in between those milestone dates. He does think to himself, He should have slit Tyrion's throat the first time I laid eyes on him, which is funny because Tyrion thinks that himself about a few few other people about him, thinking he should have just killed me right away. And there's at least one other person that thinks they should have killed Tyrion right away too. So it's kind of a common sentiment with Tyrion, including from himself. He should have just killed me right away. (laughs) I have to say, people saying that does make me wonder about what Tyrion will do (laughs) long-term. Yeah, right? (laughs) I wonder that too. I wonder if Connington is going to come back and be like, I really wish I killed Tyrion. It's (laughs) going to come back even stronger once he's, you know, at Daenerys' side and these two factions become enemies instead of allies, which, you know, is no sure thing, but I I think it's not unlikely. So paired with the thoughts of failure is the sound he associates with it. Of course, the bells are huge. It's not just the battle of the bells, it's the sound of the bells. And that, Gives us a really nice quote here. Deep bronze booms and silver chiming pounded through his skull, a maddening cacophony of noise that grew ever louder until it seemed as if his head would explode. That's a fantastic line on its own, but by drawing attention to the bronze and silver pounding through his skull, can't help but think of the golden skulls of all the captains that he's going to meet, you know, just a few paragraphs from now. And his own skull is slowly turning to stone. There's no metal there. We wonder how this is going to come into play. The ringing of bells at King's Landing during the taking of of it by his prince, by Aegon, if that will cause him to have these flashbacks, if it causes him to be too brutal in response to his memories, thinking he wasn't brutal enough last time. If he had burned Stony Sept, none of this would have happened. So what's he going to burn this time to prevent what from happening? It's the thing he's most worried about. It's the thing he associates with his failure. It's the, it's the detail that he really fixates on. And it's dangerous. It's ominous because, well, in order to not repeat that mistake, he's got to be extra brutal, right? That's how he's calibrating his actions. He's like, well, I'm not going to shy away from extra bloodshed, which is scary, right? I mean, he, in his mind, he's saying more bloodshed now prevents even more bloodshed later. But it's easy to be mistaken with that. He could cause lots of bloodshed and not prevent more bloodshed. He can cause lots of bloodshed and cause even more bloodshed on top of that. So John's not unlikely to be a bit misguided here. Trauma is not a very good guidance for strategy, right? And that is seems to be where we're, we're headed. 
And Grayscale, again, raises the stakes here because he doesn't have time to wait. That's not good. Military campaigns that are rushed tend to have more brutality. There's more war crime type behavior when you're hurrying. Take, for example, a hostage situation. If you have time to send out demands for ransoms, then you do, and then you get your money and you move on. But if you're in a hurry, you kill the prisoners and move on to your next battle. That's happened a lot in the real world. There's tons of medieval battles, not medieval battles, that have things like that happen, where the campaign is on some sort of time limit. Maybe weather is a consideration, winter is coming, something like that. But this is, it's usually not a supernatural reason like grayscale, but still, there's all sorts of reasons why people hurry, and it usually results in more brutality. And of course, we don't know how grayscale spreads. He's raising the stakes that well, too. Not only is there a chance of war crimes, but there's a, he's patient zero, potentially, of some very large number. <laughs> His zero will go to what? How many patients will there be? We don't even know how it spreads. He's keeping his hand in his glove. Does that matter? We have no idea how grayscale spreads. For all we know, it's going through the air, through water droplets. Who knows? It's a supernatural disease. This isn't understood. Regardless, it's a really interesting way for George to add more conflict to this rushed, dangerous, problematic quest. And if we really analyze his reasons, if you think through and, and look at what's going through John's mind, he thinks he's doing it for Rhaegar and Rhaegar's son, and, and that's partly true, but only at best. He's doing it for himself. Not for wealth or glory, which is, that's good, at least. It's, you know, that would be worse. He doesn't really think of it in terms of justice either, though. This isn't like restoring the Targaryens. He doesn't really think of it that way. It doesn't really matter to him that much. He doesn't think Robert is some unjust ruler. He doesn't really think of it that way. Robert was a bad ruler, but that's, that doesn't really seem to come into Coddington's mind at any point. He thinks that it's for love, but this love is all in his mind, right? It never played out in real life. He never had a relationship with Rhaegar that had any sort of basis like this. We don't even know what Rhaegar knew. Did Rhaegar realize that John Connington had feelings for him? It's not clear to us. There's very, the memories of Rhaegar are, are scant. He thinks about him a lot, but they're not specific instances with few exceptions. So it seems like he probably didn't know. Uh, I'm definitely reminded of Barristan, another short-term POV in this book, who loved Ashara Dane from afar, and I doubt she knew about that either. She probably had no knowledge of his feelings. So it's not at all like Renly and Loras, who kept their relationship a secret, sort of an open secret, but it was definitely an actual relationship where they both agreed it existed. <laughs> so what does he think would have happened with Rhaegar had he won the Battle of Bells? Would, would, there, would a relationship have developed later, or would he just have been at Rhaegar's side for a long time, happy enough to just to be in his presence and, and be around him. I mean, that's possible. We don't, again, we just don't know. There's not a lot to go on, in part because, well, he doesn't actually blame Ares for exiling him. His, there's a lot of missing pieces from his memories, partly because he's only had two chapters, and I suspect George is waiting to sh reveal more memories when they would add to the conflict in a certain way. For example... He, again, with Ares's case, I, I brought this up into some of our social media discussions. And an answer I really liked was that 
we're going to have Aries memories from John Connington when he gets to the Red Keep. Maybe that's when he'll think about being exiled, things like that. But it is kind of interesting that we haven't gotten very much on that. He doesn't have strong thoughts on Aries. He thinks about how Aries was a little paranoid. You know, like, wait, a little? <laughs> he thinks about Aries, this little minor things like that. He thinks about being exiled by an ungrateful king, a suspicious ungrateful king. It's like pretty mild takes on Aries. Like, that was exile, man. That's So I think George is saving that. I doubt he's just skipping over that. So we'll have to see. But it is, I am curious what he thought of Ares. Is it another case of, he just figured Rhaegar, my silver prince will eventually fix it all. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, a lot of people did think Rhaegar was going to fix it all. So that's not necessarily an over-romanticized ideal, given that people who weren't in love with Rhaegar also thought that. So it's entirely possible. There's a lot, in, in any case, there's a lot of opportunities coming for John Connington to have memories flood back for George to give us that in a really meaningful, powerful, emotional way. And John Connington himself is a bit of a mess internally. He's back and forth on a lot of things. It's not necessarily clear how inconsistent he is with certain things, how I, I, I almost want to call him hypocritical in some spots about his views. For example, his takes on suspicion. He tells Aegon, don't be too suspicious or it'll eat you up like Ares. You know, it's like that's putting it mildly. Don't be unsuspicious or, you know, people will take advantage of you, walk a middle ground. But internally, Griff is just distrusting of everyone, right? He doesn't try. He's, he just distrusts almost everyone except Aegon himself. He doesn't fully trust the gold company, which that makes sense. He doesn't trust Tyrion, which also makes sense. He doesn't trust Halden, which... I don't see a whole lot of reason for that. Halden seems fine. It's not, it's not a matter of honesty in his case. He just doesn't know that he's up to the task. So it's a different level of trust. And he argues with Lamore about trusting the Golden Company, which is the opposite of his thoughts, right? At one point, he's like, I don't know if I can trust them. But Lamore's like, can you trust them? And he's like, well, we have to. So <laughs> he's, it's not, it's, he's not contradicting himself, but he's battling himself. He's considering angles. He's constantly worrying about all the different things that could go wrong. And well, that's very stressful. I don't blame him though. I mean, he, it is a difficult thing. If we were trying to put ourselves in his position, even if we had a different background, heck, he's been trying to raise a prince in secret for over a decade. It's a, it's a tough job. When he thinks, he, he thinks of how, how the mistrust can poison you, can make you sour and fearful. And he says... That's what happened to Ares, which is, <laughs> again, pretty mild. <laughs> Ares was more than just sour and fearful. He wouldn't cut his own hair or nails. I mean, wow. So that's, he's turning a blind eye almost to what Ares was, perhaps because he was on his team. And that's another thing that's ominous. So turning a blind eye to atrocities when they benefit your side is perhaps a good way to summarize that. Another great example of how well the world is set up and how well these, this chapter can just go without a lot of explanation is because uh, examples like this, uh, Arthur Dane. It was a camp that even Arthur Dane might have approved of, compact, orderly, defensible. Well, that's one of the more legendary characters in the world's recent history. And if we understand from this a lot, or rather, we understand from this a lot, it tells us that he was extremely disciplined. He set high standards. Just this one line tells us that. It also reminds us that he knew the guy. That's tantalizing. Again, John Connington's memories could tell us a lot. 
they might not, but there's a lot of potential there. His closest to Rhaegar and Ares, of course, we mentioned that. Being Hand of the King, there's all sorts of counselors he worked with, people like that. He would have worked with Varys even before they were plotting behind the scenes. Who knows what he has, what other thoughts he has on that. Arthur Dane, of course, the White Bull. Barris and Selmy. He knew Barris and Selmy when he was younger. That's Tywin one. and Joanna. Ty, yeah, Tywin and Joanna. Great call. There's a lot of rabbit holes. And all, and all of these are potentially very important. George can reveal things to us about Tywin's past, Joanna's past, through a number of, number of ways. But I bet a lot of people hadn't considered that John Connington was one of them. The camp. When they arrive at the camp of the Golden Company, it's a really interesting comparison to what we see in the next chapter with the Windblown, where we have an entirely different sellsword company with different setup, different organization, different discipline. Now, I wouldn't say the Windblown are disorganized compared to other sellsword companies. We don't really know. But compared to the Golden Company, that argument does exist because the Golden Company is so very organized and disciplined. It, it makes regular organization look disorganized and looks disorganization looks like abject chaos. So also, this is much larger, so it's more impressive. The Windblown is 3,000 men. The Golden Company is 10,000. And 10,000 and 3,000 don't tell the whole story because those are the number of fighters. We're led to understand that that number is only the fighters and some of the officers and company members. There would be members who are part of the company that don't fight, and there would be people who are not part of the company who travel with them, camp followers. There's a, we've heard this many times over. Whenever there's an army, there's like a secondary group that follows them around that consists of merchants, uh, sex workers, random people of all kinds. This is also really important that they're so much better than everything around them. They're a real army. They're not just a group of fighters. They have all the different components of an army. A lot of these sellsword companies don't have that. For example, the Second Sons are only 500 men. They're all cavalry. That's not if I'm remembering correctly anyway, I could be getting my numbers wrong. But the point is, they don't have like an infantry division. They don't have like an archery corps, things like that, where the Golden Company has elephants, cavalry, archers, different types of archers too. Some crossbowmen, some longbowmen, et cetera. Uh, infantrymen, javelineers, skirmishers, all sorts of stuff. So that's really neat. And it's, it's not something that's a small detail. It may not be super well explained, but it's important, especially going to be important when actual battles happen. I expect the Golden Company to do quite well, at least early on. But let's not forget that Daenerys has some incredible weapons at her disposal as well. And I'm not talking about just the dragons. I think if the Unsullied were to fight the Golden Company, mm, I think the, uh, my money would be on the Unsullied, assuming it wasn't just a one-on-one -on -one because, well, the Unsullied are way outnumbered by the Golden Company, and that would matter a lot. So if the Unsullied had like a supporting group of horsemen or something, uh, to balance out the numbers. I think they would be able to win, but it would, be a, it would be an interesting fight. And here's something Nina writes. This is not the backstabbing, disorganized, ephemeral sellsword experience we've seen with the Storm Crows or the Windblown. I mean, yeah, that's a great point. Think about how Dario became <laughs> commander of the Storm Crows. He killed the other captains. I mean, the Golden Company, apparently that wouldn't happen. We certainly hear of it happening, but apparently it was a duel. Like, Maelys the Monstrous fought his cousin Damon for control of the company. It wasn't like a assassination like it was with Dario, at least as far as we think. That was more of like a trial by combat for rulership of the, of the company. I imagine that 
Damon could have just said, no, thanks. And either held on because he didn't accept the challenge or just gave up command, something like that. So they're also wealthier. They're, it's not just that they're uh, more organized. They're, they have more cash. They're more successful. They have a great reputation. And they want to protect all those things. All those things. Not just the reputation, but their wealth. And that's really important because that gets us into the character of Harry Strickland, who I'm not going to talk about just yet, but I want to set that up as far as how they've changed over the years. But let's start by talking about who, start, who founded them and how they've changed over time. Bittersteel founded the Golden Company, and of course, he wasn't concerned with making money. He was certainly concerned with having enough to function, but he wasn't about profit. He's not going to, you're not going to see him like Harry Strickland agonizing over giving up a rich contract especially not for this. This is the thing that the Golden Company was founded for, to install their claimant on the Iron Throne. The sellsword stuff was something to pass the time to get them ready for this big grand moment. Well, in this case, they've had their prior moments. <laughs> they call it the second Blackfire, third Blackfire, fourth. Well, not the second. Better still had nothing to do with that. But you get the point. Someone like Harry Strickland is sitting here going, well, we've got a nice thing going, let's keep it going. Whereas someone like Bittersteel and some of the other, you know, more hardcore ideolo ideologues, the ones who really care about the Blackfire's original mission, that's the thing that matters most. And that's an interesting consideration as we move through some of these other characters within the Golden Company. How much do they know? How much do they care about all that old stuff? For example, we hear of this character, Lysone Omar. We'll talk about him more in a minute. But he doesn't seem to have any connection to the Blackfire side of things. He might have a connection to Varus, which maybe means he does have a connection to the Blackfires. But he wasn't in the company when John Connington was last there. He's not like a descendant of one of the houses that fled into exile. Harry Strickland is, for example. So it's pretty interesting. There's a big mix of characters here. Uh, one of the first things... Connington does is look at the skulls of the dead captains from over the years of the Golden Company. Let's talk about that really briefly. Uh, Bittersteel's skull is the first there. He formed the company in 212, died 29 years later in 241. For reference, if you want your timeline reference, that's the year before Tywin's birth, two years after Bloodraven was, uh, became Lord Commander of the Wall. That's during the reign of Aegon V, Aegon the Unlikely. Um, Varys didn't want John Connington to become a gallant exile. That's the phrase he uses, and it might be because Bittersteel did become a gallant exile. People kept talking about him. People kept focusing on him. He was the kind of a heroic, um, well, a gallant exile, heroic gallant exile. The term is, is pretty, fits pretty darn well. And people kept talking about him. People, kept, people knew that if they were exiled from the Seven Kingdoms, they could seek out the Golden Company. Even now, Duck did that, right? Perfect example. So Varus might not have wanted anything like that to be repeated, where there's this famous situation. He wanted them to forget about John Connington, so he may have been thinking of how famous Bittersteel's exile was and thinking, no, we definitely don't want that. Which is interesting because we've done a lot of comparing of Bittersteel and, and uh, John Connington. They have so much in common. The parallel lives on them is like a long list. Uh, but this thing was, uh, is something they have perhaps in reverse. He probably didn't think it funny or nice that he died at age 69, bitter steel. <laughs> Nor do I think he found it amusing that the oft-refeated phrase, beneath the gold, the bitter steel, became true of his skull. <laughs> He's the bitter steel beneath the golden covering. Yeah. 
One topic we delve into in our Golden Company episode is how they've changed over the years. The military strategy, for example, the military composition. For example, when they were first formed, there's no evidence of elephants in 212. There's not even elephants in Maley's The Monstrous's time, which was the 260s. So I think that maybe the elephants came later. They're an example of the Gold Company going to fight in interesting different places. We know they went to Kohor. And I have a new theory that maybe they went to Mantaris. Um, Mantaris would make sense. It's the so-called city of monsters. One chapter from now, we're told the yellow whale has a two-headed slave in his grotesquerie. Later, we learn that one of those two heads has filed teeth. Two heads is a super rare thing, and filed teeth are pretty rare too. There are other examples, but it's not exactly common. It just so happens that the only two unusual skulls among the Golden Company's former captains are a guy with two heads and a guy with filed teeth. So I wonder, and, and of course, again, this guy, this character is mentioned next chapter. The Golden Company goes to Mantaris. Could have been like an episode in their past. And maybe there was some intermarriage or a long-term contract, for example. I mean, Mantaris is wealthy, so it, it could, they could definitely afford to keep the Golden Company around. And this could be an example of not only uh, how it may explain some of these peculiarities in their appearances, these abnormalities, but it might also explain some of the adaptations they've made to their fighting styles. They go to the exotic places, see how the locals fight, and take some of the best aspects of that and incorporate it into their own fighting styles. So for more on the Golden Company and or Bitter Steel, we've got full episodes on them both. As part of our long series on the Blackfire Rebellions, episode five is Bitter Steel. Episode six is the Golden Company. We find them now 88 years later. We've got all those cool skulls lined up. John is, is perusing them. <laughs> thinking maybe one day he could have ended up on, as one of them because he was on track to be the leader one day, perhaps after Blackheart. But of course, then they had to do this whole, oh, he stole from the company to get in to make people forget about him, which of course he did not steal from the company. I appreciate Lamore's talk to Griff, even though Connington doesn't agree with her fully. He does agree with her partially. Uh, she do, he does admit she's got some good points. The point be, this points being, are we sure these guys are really that interested in who he is, in Aegon? Do, we re, do, do they actually care about the dragon side of this? Does their loyalty matter in that sense? Are they, are, are they really just out for lands and gold? It's a valid question. And the answer, I think, is yes for a lot of them, but definitely not all of them. The Gold Company is generations beyond those who would have readily bought into the dream of returning glory, but there are still some hanging on to that idea. And of course, he's been gone for the from the company for a while, so even 12 years is a long time for some more of that to die off, for some of those loyalties to die off, for, for new blood to come in and to have different values, different things they care about. Harry Strickland is so cautious, so protective of the status quo, that it really sends the message that they're happy with the way things are in a lot of ways, and they don't want to risk breaking up a good thing for this ideological mission, for this quest that is really dangerous and is really risky and is uncertain. On the other hand, it's worth the risk for a lot of them because, quite frankly, this life isn't great. I mean, even successful swords. They're still traveling constantly. They don't have homes. They don't have a place to 
relax. They're constantly having to fight and travel. And wouldn't it be nice to just have a castle and just be able to live out your days there instead? A lot of them want that way more than they want to die old at the Golden Company. They have money. Like a lot of them, we see them how rich a lot of them are. They have gold armbands and Lord's ransoms on their person is one of the description. But what good is that if they can't spend it on things they want to do? All they're just wearing wealth, they look nice. But is that really how they want to retire? And I wonder about Varus throughout all this. So Harry Strickland's the leader. How did this... John Connington wondered how this guy became leader. Some of it makes sense. You can see why some of them, out of so many people... So many members of the Golden Company, some of them would appreciate his cautious, profit-minded style. Like, keep it safe, keep it easy, rake in the money. What's wrong with that kind of leadership? That's not actually that hard of a sell for a lot of people. To John Connington, it's off-putting because it's not at all what he's interested in. He doesn't care about profit. He doesn't care about becoming rich. He's got much different set of goals in mind. So that's... Part of the disconnect here is the very different ideals that are being uh, parlayed here. But also, with the idea that Varus has been behind so much of this company, I seriously doubt he would leave something like who the next Captain General is to chance. When Blackheart died, we know Blackheart was pretty deep in the plot, perhaps very deep, knowing a lot more than John Connington does, quite possibly. So when he dies, you think Varus and Lyra are going to be like, let's see who is elected next for the Golden Company. Now, they have all these long-term plans. I bet there was some money thrown around, some bribery, maybe some favors. Just they certainly maneuvered a little bit. I bet Harry Strickland was who they wanted to be the leader. And this is a good reason why. He's cautious and careful. That's actually what they want in the short term. They don't want him making any mistakes. They don't want the company getting embroiled in something they can't get out of. Keep them light. Keep it simple. That way, when the time comes, they can easily change, shift gears, head to Westeros, and a softy at the tops. Not someone who can argue. Not someone that the men are going to be like, no, we're back in Harry. Harry says we're staying. We're staying. Nah, this guy's too weak for that. They're not going to follow a guy who's that cautious. He's not the kind of guy that they're going to get behind and be like, rah, Harry. So... Having a weakling at the top keeps the Golden Company more able to be manipulated, right? It makes them more malleable. So I think that's something that's maybe under-discussed is the, how much of a role Varus and perhaps Illyrio have had, not just recently, but over the years, in affecting the leadership structure of the Golden Company. Because they've had a lot wrapped up in the Golden Company. They, they require a lot from them. A lot, of, a lot of their goal rests on the success of this part. So it wouldn't be good for them to have a strong-willed, charismatic person that might have other plans, right? That would be bad. So that, that's, I think that's particularly interesting. But it's still also interesting that even though a lot of them are probably weak, uh, more about money, they're not that sold in this whole Blackfire thing, it still matters. I mean, it still matters within the company's culture. The fact that Harry Strickland has gold for four generations probably helped his election. The fact that he's an original member, his family was, that probably really helped. It's something that probably uh, was a major boost in his election. I tweeted this. I tweeted the Jeb Bush, please clap uh, meme for this one. Because when Connington announces, I present Aegon, son of Rhaegar, they're just like, yep, 
Yeah, that's cool. Not one person claps. There's like no reaction at all. It's really funny how so much of the scene parallels or mirrors Rob Stark's King in the North moment. But this is the opposite, the reaction. They are so fired up for Rob Stark, right? But this, they're like, yeah, okay, we know. <laughs> and he's like, and in his mind, he realizes pretty quickly, John's like, oh, they know already. Now, yes, they know, but what do they know? In my mind, I'm torn on whether some of them know the real truth. Obviously, Varus and Illyrio do. I don't see a compelling reason for them to have told a lot of other people. Why risk telling other members of the Golden Company who he really is unless their loyalty buy-in requires him being Blackfire? Then they would tell those particular members who's, who, who care about that. Blackheart may have been one of those, but I don't think Harry Strickland necessarily is, given his disposition, given how he is against all these things that Varus and Illyria are for, or is he? Maybe Varus and Illyria don't like this idea of not going to Daenerys. Maybe they are against this Go West Young Griff plan. That we don't know. We, they haven't weighed in on that. We've only seen Varus talk to Kevin like right afterwards. So we're kind of in a holding pattern on learning what's up with that. But it does have a lot of things that do line up really well with Rob and King in the North scene. For example, Catelyn, if we were to be in someone else's head in that scene, Catelyn would come off like a coward. But we're in Catelyn's head and we know she's not. She's smart. She's wise. She's like, this is a bad idea. And events proved her right. At least the case could be made if it's not obvious. I think, I think maybe there's some debate to be had about that. But mostly Catelyn was right that this is not going to go well. She had that Knights of Summer moment that came back when she was, you know, it was, she didn't call it that then, but when she saw the Knights of Summer down in, in Renly's camp, it feels like the same kind of notion. They're like all ready to go fight, not really thinking about what they're getting into. So Harry Strickland is like the Catelyn here. He's not necessarily wise like she is, and he's certainly not trying to protect his own child. But it's similar in that he's the voice of reason in a lot of ways, kind of cast as a coward. See, I'm not sure which it is. I think it can be both. I don't think Catelyn was being cowardly, to be clear. I think she had legitimate concerns. With Harry, I think it's a little of both. I think he is a little bit scared. But some of his concerns are reasonable. When he brings up, like, how are we going to do this without the dragons? Like, that's a fair point. Like, Illyrio and Varys both also think the dragons are important. On the other hand, it's, it is true that getting to Daenerys right now is almost impossible. They would have to do something like lie to the Volantines about their purpose. Do like what Quentin did, but instead of just, you know, three of them, it's 10,000 of them. So it's logistically a lot harder to pull off. Plus, they still care about their reputation. They don't want to lie twice in a row. They already broke one contract the first time ever. If they break two in close succession like that, well, I think that long, long history of never breaking a contract is just gone. He's like, nope, you guys can't bank on that anymore. You've clearly broken contracts twice in a row. No longer can you claim that your word is as good as gold. So we also have similarities in the great John being like the loud voice who rejects the South. He says, nah, screw the South. We married them, but they're gone. We married the dragons, but the dragons are gone. That's a good reason for us to break apart. Here we have this guy, Tristan Rivers, who's like, screw the plan. The plan keeps changing. Forget that. Let's make our own plan. Why should we keep dancing to a leader who doesn't understand what's going on? Similar sentiment. Like, why should we listen to people who have no idea who we are and how we live? 
in our culture, things like that. So it is, I do like that, the good similarity crossover here, even though behind it all, it feels a lot more shallow because the, there's, this is a group of sell swords. Most of them are, are, are about the money here. And I don't mean it in like that they're bad people necessarily, although I think a lot of them probably are. It's a much different feel to what they're rising for. In other words, for Rob and them, it was like justice. Ned was killed, right? We, we have a right to be independent because the feudal contract was broken. This, none of these people were wronged <laughs> by <laughs> the, uh, the current regime except for maybe Connington a little bit. You know, like most of them have nothing to do. They were beaten. Their grand, great-grandparents were beaten a long time ago. But the people that beat them are long dead. But you gotta you kind of appreciate Aegon. It's, it's the way he steps forward and says, well, he says this. And then Prince Aegon spoke. Then put your hopes on me, he said. Daenerys is Prince Rhaegar's sister, but I am Rhaegar's son. I am the only dragon that you need. This is a great moment for him. I mean, he steps up. He makes these men his. This is a kid that says all the right things. And Joe Buckley writes, Tyrion Lannister, you son of a gun, you did it. Yeah, he really did it. It really worked out for him in ways he couldn't have foreseen. Like Tyrion could not have foreseen how poorly things would line up for the existing plan the gold company had laid out. They're like, well, we're going to go to Slaver's Bay. He's like, yeah, but we can't. So the fact is that this Go West plan, part of the reason it is so appealing is that their original plan is completely shot. So it fits really well. It's, in other words, it's a way for them to continue doing what they wanted to do because the alternative would be to give up. Like, well, we can't go to Slaver's Bay, so let's just not do anything. That's Which is kind of what Harry Strickland is saying. He's like, well... Let's either wait longer until things change or until we can find a way to get there. So Tyrion could not have foreseen all these factors breaking that direction. And I really love how, how wrong so many of these characters are. Like Harry Strickland's like, they've got the wind blown and this and that. Well, the wind blown are going to switch sides to Daenerys' side. <laughs> it's like, what about all those slaver lords? What about all their armies? Well, in the next chapter, we see how ridiculous those armies are. <laughs> the clanker lords and the girl general and the, the little pigeon and Lord Wobble Cheeks. If he knew that's what they would be fighting up against, he might be like, okay, actually, this is going to be easy. <laughs> so, which is another reason to think that he's the voice of Varus there. He's like, no, stick to the plan, the plan that Varus and Illyrio wanted. So very important to keep these lines of power. Who's directing the, who's the puppet? Who's the puppet master? All that stuff. And Nina points out that the I am Rhaegar's son line, I'm the only dragon that you need, is very similar to another bold, young Targaryen, actual Targaryen, <laughs> unlike this one probably, Daron the first who, well, let's read another quote. You'll catch the similarity right away. A youth of rare brilliance and forcefulness, Daron at first met resistance from his uncle, his counselors, and many great lords when he first proposed to complete the conquest by bringing Dorne into the realm at last. His lords reminded him that, unlike the conqueror and his sisters, he had no more dragons fit for war. To this, Daron famously responded, 
You have a dragon. He stands before you. Right? <laughs> Pretty tough old kid there, too. So it's another path to parallels with Rob Stark. We've gone over the parallels between Rob Stark and Daron the first many times. We, they were introduced all the way back in John 1, A Game of Thrones. Like, that's when that character was introduced, the idea of Daron the first. So and the young dragon, the young wolf, yeah. Not great vibes for Aegon, though, <laughs> to com- be compared to those two since they both died young without heirs of their body and lost their conquests. Worse for him, when Daron referred to himself as a dragon, well, there weren't any real dragons in the world that we know of. Here, Aegon is perhaps setting himself up to be on the wrong side of actual dragons. Hmm. Joe points out how well-suited and timed this proposal to go west is because these guys are, you know, Harry Strickland aside, they want, they, you can see the way they respond to this. They like the idea of this bold stroke. The sense that maybe they're bored with these easy contracts, with this just piling up wealth and not having any challenges in life. They don't hate it, but they don't love it either. It's hard to hate getting wealthy doing easy stuff. But it's also not hard to find that a bit shallow and not, you know, a lifestyle that is for, well, not for all of them. Harry continues to argue. He pushes, he pushes, but he's pretty much on his own. There's almost no one helping him out. Almost everyone's either quiet or back in Griff, young Griff entirely. They're like, yes, do it. I mentioned this briefly before. Tristan Rivers basically stands up and says, plans suck. There's no point in having these long-term plans when things are just going to change all the time. I'm reminded of Aqua Teen Hunger Force, the character who says, plans are for fools. I do appreciate do things our own way. Now, they're not really doing things their own way. They don't realize how much they've been led here. They don't realize how much deception is going on around them. But the idea of making your own way making your own plan. See why that would be appealing to a bunch of sellswords who they've always defined their lifestyles based on their own uh, beliefs. You know, they don't, they didn't obey when they lost these wars. They didn't bend the knee. They continued to fight. Other mentioned factors are people like Laswell Peak saying he has friends in the reach. I'm a little dubious of that. So is Nina. So is Joe a little bit. We're wondering who's still going to be friends with the peaks this long after. I mean, the peaks were a powerhouse back in the day, but they're not anymore. However, that said, we definitely agree that the whole concept of friends in the reach is very legit. Houses like Tarly, Rowan are pretty likely to be a part of that. Another one of them mentions that, hey, we can just, if it doesn't go well, we've got an out. We'll flee back across the narrow sea as Bittersteel once did. Is that true though? Where are they going to get ships? They had trouble finding ships to take them there. Who's going to come pick them up and take them back? You know, it'd be funny to think of. I, I, one candidate I can think of who might do that would be Salador San. I don't, I don't know why he would be involved in that, but he is in the area, has a sufficient ships to do it. Uh, but he's not exactly reliable. It'd be funny if, if he took their money and ran away. That happened to Spartacus, by the way. Harry is later going to express surprise, right? He's going to be the voice of this is too dangerous. But once they actually land, he's going to be like, I can't believe how easy this is. <laughs> so, and he's still going to think, he's, he, he's so shocked at how easy it is. He's in disbelief that it's going to stay that way. He's like, it can't possibly stay this easy. It's got to get harder, right? <laughs> and John Connick is like, bro, seize the day. 
by the end of the meet, John's pretty satisfied. He wasn't even sure how the gold company would receive the kid in general. So the end result of them laying their swords at his feet, including Harry Strickland, I mean, that really couldn't have gone much better. Yes, it would have been better if they cheered. <laughs> they clapped or whatever. But this is pretty solid. This is a good result considering he was worried they might kill him, <laughs> right? So that's good. And, and for once, John Connington, for the whole chapter, we finally get like a positive moment from him where he actually has a minute to relax and, and think positively. And here's the quote. All he asked was time. He had waited so long, surely the gods would grant him a few more years, enough time to see the boy he'd called his son seated on the Iron Throne, to reclaim his lands, his name, his honor, to still the bells that rang so loudly in his dreams whenever he closed his eyes to sleep. But John, you're the wrong John here. The John who's the hero in this story is Jon Snow. You're Jon Connington. So this whole, surely the gods will blah, blah. That's the kind of wishful thinking that he'd denigrate if someone else said it to him. The gods don't care. The gods have no romantic notions about your success in life, Jon Connington. You do. All he asked was time. Well, you will have it. The only person who might give that to you is George R. R. Martin. I don't think he's going to. Speaking of time running out, from the volunteer perspective, 10,000 disciplined fighters who haven't taken a side hanging out nearby. That's dangerous. With the Dothraki also nearby, Slaver's Bay in the state it is, we've been talking about this a good bit because all these chapters are circling around this area. So again, Volantis is nervous. We've explained why, but we've mostly focused on the evidence of its doom from within the text as readers rather than looking at how the perspective of the volunteer rulers and nobility would be. Like, what do they know? What We know they should be worried, but how actually worried are they? And how prepared are they? It's unclear, but they are at least somewhat aware. They send a notable-sized army to block the Golden Company from crossing to the Volantis side of the Rhoyne. It's an army smaller than the Golden Company, and that's important because it means it's no threat to attack them but it's large enough to be dangerous and large enough to block the way. It's a river road. It's kind of like Moat Kalen. I mean, it's not nearly as bad as Moat Kalen in terms of difficulty, but it's a similar concept in that even though the Golden Company has almost twice as many men, they can't make use of all those men because there's this narrow area to fight. There's simply not enough space for all those men to fight at once. Most of them are just going to be standing back because they can't get close enough to the foe. So a sellsword company, even the Golden Company, is not going to fight a battle like that. I mean, they'll win, but for what? What would be the point? Too many losses, no profit. That's not the way they operate. They don't win battles just because, unless they're easy, unless there's no risk. There's clearly risk, even though they have, you know, greater numbers. 6,000 versus 10,000, they'll win. They're better but they'd lose a lot of men and there's just no good reason to do that. This is some of that same risk aversion. Harry Strickland in charge keeps things safe. Volantis, however, from their perspective, they don't know what the Golden Company is going to do. They're wary that he might support Daenerys. So they want to protect against that possibility without provoking them because they also want to hold open the possibility that the Golden Company joins them. And we hear about the offer, the Yunkish offer a ton. The Volantines don't, but the Yunkish offer an absurd amount to the Golden Company to take their side. 
we'll hear in Tyrion's next chapter that the announcement has been made. So the Volantines will know, even before Tyrion tells us, that the Gold Company has announced they're going west. Tyrion's so surprised that he's like, is it a trick? And the guy who sends that army to block the Gold Company is Triarch Malakoil. Let's talk about him for a minute. He's old and literally toothless, an interesting metaphor to consider for a guy who was a member of the Tiger faction. I wouldn't make too much of that, though, because he seems dangerous still. Funny thing, he's of House Majir. Yes, the same name and spelling as Talisa Majir, a.k.a. the heavily changed HBO version of Jane Westerling. We never really did grasp why they made her a, a volunteer. Uh, it certainly spawned a lot of theories, but it didn't amount to anything. <laughs> I had forgotten you were right. <laughs> so, uh, but that is, they didn't make up a house. They used an existing one from canon, which made it even more like, huh, what's going on? Nothing was the answer. Nothing. So before he sent the army to prevent the Golden Company from crossing the Rhoyne, he tried to hire them to assault the Red Temple inside Volantis, which they were like, no. <laughs> he wanted them to kill Bonero. The same one who keeps preaching that Daenerys is Azor Ahai, the same one who's preaching that Volantis will burn if it takes up arms against her. You can see why they want him dead, but you can also see why they can't send their own men to do it. Why didn't he say send the same 6,000-man army or something to do it? Why couldn't he send that, those guys to do it? Well, it's very common for city-states to not allow their own armies inside the city, especially city-states that have like elected officials because especially multiple elected officials a king could do that if he wanted to. But if you have one ruler bringing 6,000 soldiers into the city, you know, and the other two rulers didn't approve that, well, all of a sudden, what it, it looks like one of them is trying to overthrow the other two. So typically, that stuff is just banned. Like, for example, Rome, it wasn't, it, Rome wasn't allowed to bring legions inside the city. It happened a few times, but it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be. The other situation, though, to consider is that they might be slave soldiers. The city guard, are definitely slave soldiers. Those are the tiger cloaks, kind of like the comparison to the gold cloaks or whatever. But we're not as sure about the army. I think the army is made up of slave soldiers, but I'm not 100% sure of that. The slave soldiers worship R'hllor, though, and that's the point. Like, they're not going to obey a command. Even slaves aren't going to obey a command to kill their own high priest. No. And the Volunteers are smart enough not to even try that. Malico is currently up for re-election, we're going to see him campaigning during Tyrion's next chapter, which, of course, is in Volantis. Nina caught some wordplay here. She says, I like that George notes John Connington was sick of hiding, sick of waiting, sick of caution, given that he's sick with grayscale. <laughs> and this is probably also reflected in how he's annoyed at Tyrion being hale and whole. It's referenced like he hasn't been beheaded. but it's also probably a bitterness that Tyrion didn't get grayscale and he did. Maybe some more wordplay when, I think it's Tristan Rivers or Mark Mandrake or Franklin Flowers says, the boy has stones. When Aegon makes his announcement to go west, and he says, you don't need Daenerys. Well, he's right next to a guy who's turning to stone. I wonder if Aegon will catch that too. Then he will have stones, <laughs> very, very literally. Speaking of Franklin Flowers, Mark Mandrake, Lysona Mar, there's so, like I said, this, ch this chapter is a monster. We have hardly talked about any of those characters. We'll have a chance to do that later. But look how much time we've already spent on this chapter without getting into that. Honestly, this chapter had more comments and questions than just about any other ever. Like in the entire run of Valerie Redis, the flick 
comments. I think there were more comments on Flick than we've ever had. Nina and Joe both just wrote a ton for me to incorporate into my writing here. I had a lot to say too. So really, this chapter, I wouldn't have picked it for one of the most discussed. But that is how it's playing out. So that's cool. A little bit of a fun surprise for us all, perhaps. Let's talk briefly about how he looks. Of course, there's the blue hair still, but he has these interesting black iron chain with three square cut rubies. He's wearing lots of black, which maybe gives off Blackfire vibes, but Daenerys, I mean, but the Blackfires actually wore red with the black dragon. So Rhaenyra wore black and she was the blacks faction. So it sort of works, but by dressing in black, he actually gives off the, the notion of Rhaegar's son. Rhaegar wore all black armor with the red dragon when he was killed by Robert. We'll have to see if there's the sword Blackfire waiting for him or if that's going to get presented to him. But we associate these rubies with glamours. Now, I do not think Aegon is glamoured, but conceptually, he's an illusion because he's not probably a Targaryen. So it's thematically speaking, the ruby necklace kind of speaks to that hidden identity. Along the same lines, Aegon's big gray gelding so pale that he was almost white kind of reminds us of the pale ghost horses that we see in Jamie's dream when he has that long dream of Rhaegar and the Kingsguard. They're, wearing, they're riding ghost horses. And that might be another hint that this is a pale imitation of the real deal. Is it ghost? Not the real thing. As we move forward, John Connington highlights the elephants. We are very curious about the elephants, how that's going to play out. The show didn't have them. They, it joked about not having them. At least it gave us that. But it would have been cool to have. So we'll at least we'll get them on page. And that's going to be fun. Because we, we also probably have the opportunity to see mammoths in battle again. We've already seen that once. But uh, there's still 80 mammoths left, 200 giants. We have all of this coming with elephants. At least three elephants have landed as of the, the, Griff, the Griffin Reborn chapter. And more likely, there'll be more ships that drop off more elephants. We'll just have to see what gets done with them. As we know, there's a lot of assumed names in the Golden Company. Some people just give themselves names from history, and some people are actual descendants from these families. Let's go through a few of them, a few of the more well-known ones. Franklin Flowers sounds a lot like Duck Story. Uh, And it's believable and it's recent. So he's a good example of someone that joined the Golden Company in the current generation rather than a descendant of of past ones. Nevertheless, he has a specific goal in mind, which is the Fossilway House. Because, which is, you know, I imagine that's what he wants given to him. He says he wants to kill some Fossilways, but I bet he wants the whole castle. Tristan Rivers, we really don't know who he is. Nina suggests he might be a, a bastard dairy cousin mentioned when Lancel is given dairy, but there's really not that much to go on. That is something of a wild guess, given that uh, it's trying to connect dots that we don't necessarily have the evidence for. It could be right. Um, the peaks, of course, we mentioned them already. They're weak now. They're not. They're weak peaks. They used to be strong peaks. They're no longer tall peaks. <laughs> so I wouldn't, uh, I'm very curious at where, where they think their power is coming from. The Loftons get mentioned. They might be legit. The peaks might be legit. I'm just worried, wondering about how much power they truly have. The Lostons, that's a tough one. They were beaten not that long ago in the 230s. Uh, so it's entirely possible we have real descendants of the Lostons. It would not be difficult to believe. 
The Strongs, however, that's almost impossible. The Strongs most likely went extinct during the Dance of the Dragons, which is way long ago. The Goldcomb was formed in 212. And so where were these Strongs hanging out after 130? For 80 years, then they joined the Golden Company? Yeah, I don't think so. I think these are fakes. The Coles also probably fake. The Coles also weren't very big, but Kristen Cole, his whatever small power they had was probably lost by his embroiling on the, on the losing side. And that also was a long time ago, also the Dance of the Dragons. The most definitely made up one is House Mud. There's a, mar, uh, there's a House Mud representative in the Golden Company. The Muds died out like thousands of years ago. Two plus thousand years ago, they've been extinct. So that's just a really random choice for it. It's like, yeah, I'm going to pick a house that died out 2,000 years ago. I'm going to try to claim their old lands that nobody even remembers. And Mandrake, we don't even, that house is new. So he's a complete question mark. That He might have just made up a name, made up a house, or maybe it's some small steward house that we haven't heard of. They don't own, their lands are too small to show up on the map. Nina suggests there's a small parallel between Harry Strickland and Bowen Marsh with Jon Snow and John Connington, given the arguments of, about power. Of course, the roles are flipped in that Harry Strickland is in charge, whereas Bowen Marsh is not. And there's the two arguing against changing the plan, the ones arguing against doing things differently, kind of the old school traditionalist versus the younger, more energetic, dynamic uh, risk taker. Lysan Omar mentions pirate ship will not suffice. We would need a pirate fleet in terms of bringing the entire Golden Company across. That might be a, a subtle wink to how Daenerys' army is going to get to Westeros because Victorian is headed there and that is entirely possibly the way that Daenerys' army is going to get to Westeros, which is the pirate fleet of Victorian Greyjoy. <laughs> A.J. Borkar says, is there any references to people suffering from grayscale coming in contact with the others? This is a, a question that's been popping up here and there. And there isn't, but there is the suggestion of that from Val. Val says that grayscale doesn't stop. It sleeps. It can wake back up. That doesn't connect it to the others. That just connects it to Northern tradition, wildling tradition beyond the wall. They have their own ideas about what's happened there. But it might be. It might be a connection. And we'll be, we're going to continue to keep an eye out for clues there. But there's definitely nothing like super straightforward with that. Um, but it's, it's an open question because why would Val be so worried about it? You wonder if, if the others can control people who are afflicted with grayscale. Maybe it's not a direct connection, but there's some overlap like that. Very curious though. But unfortunately, not a whole lot to go on right now. Hedgehogs and cats are life, says John Con thirsted for a Valyrian in the river of the Roinar so much that the shrouded lord cursed him. <laughs> Certainly a few of you mentioned the misogyny of Aegon's comments. Like, who's going to stop us? A woman? He's referring to Cersei. And they also, denigration is thrown at Daenerys the same way, even though she's far more successful than any of them. That is a bad sign for them uh, having a, a strong coalition if they're not if they're not going to work with any of the women leaders there. That's not necessarily what this is indicating, but there's a lot of women holding power in Westeros right now, and they don't want to reject that. Stefan B. points out that the, talking about the flexible plan, that yeah, Varys and Illyrio have done a really good job adjusting their plan as things have changed. But 
might not have been a very good plan in the first place. That might be why it's needed to be adjusted so many times. Okay, that is it for that monster chapter. The Windblown. The gang meets the Tattered Prince, a.k.a. Dornish Spies Like Us. Spies Like Us was a 80s movie? I think it was 80s with Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray? I forget. I, I remember really liking it when I was a kid, and now that I can't remember who the actors are, I wonder. I maybe should rewatch it. It was pretty funny. I wonder if it would hold up. Some subtle but still astounding chapter sequencing here, Chevy Joe Rice. Chevy Chase. That's right. Of course. Thank you. <laughs> At the end of The Lost Lord, we had a whole company of veteran warriors all buying into the story and getting caught up in the thrill of what is basically a new adventure. We've seen what those kind of promises can end up with during Quentin 1. After all, the first line of his entire arc is Adventure Stank. And, but definitely here, we see a lot more of that, where all the potential can go wrong. Like, there are a bunch of leaders in a tent cheering. Here we get the sellsword view on the common side, right? These are rank and file members. Even though they're actually Dornish Highborn members, they're disguised and hanging out amidst the uh, more common elements of the windblown. And with its most ridiculous elements, the various outlanders' slave armies are around here too. And that's a big part of this chapter. It's another sign of how detached and corrupt these slavers have become over the centuries. They're utterly ridiculous. It's hard to imagine why anyone would think these absurd strategies would work. And that's the point. They're so detached from reality that they don't listen to anyone else. They go their own way on everything. They're independent thinkers, which isn't always a bad thing, but it certainly is here. (laughs) These are people who don't listen to people with real experience who know what's successful and what might or might not work in war. What is this someone who's descended from eons of slave owners going to know about fighting wars when we know for a fact that Marine and Yunkai and Astapor have done a good job of avoiding war for a long, long time by being the place that uh, successful warlords come after they fight their wars elsewhere to sell their slaves. You don't destroy the store you sell your loot to. And They've never had evidence to the contrary because they haven't fought these battles. They don't know that their silly chained-together soldiers won't work. They've never been tested. A real soldier could have told you that's never going to work, but why would they listen to a real soldier? They're a big, powerful slave owner. They wouldn't even talk to such a person because they're above that. So it's not a coincidence that we have our closest look at a sellsword company back-to-back with our next closest look at a sellsword company. It connects us to a lot of ongoing plots. This is a short chapter. It's nowhere near the average length, but it's a little easier to follow what's happening here the second, third, fourth time around, even though it's short, because with the last chapter, we introduced a lot of new characters, and the pace doesn't exactly slow down here. A whole bunch of new characters are introduced here as well, so there's actually a lot to keep track of. It starts like this. The word passed through the camp like a hot wind. That phrase is actually a little odd to me. Readers have to take a moment to get their bearings. It's a little odd to hear, wait, Daenerys coming south to Yunkai? That doesn't sound right. That's what the rumor is here. But we just heard that she's not doing that. She's like, I'm not going. She's staying in Marine. 
that tells us either something changed off page or more likely there's some misinformation going on, but we still want to know what is the source of that misinformation. And we see this perspective much differently. Because these are rank and file members and not officers, they're the last to find out. That's why they hear through rumor rather than being, you know, us seeing the perspective of a group of commanders discussing it. And the bar is rather high on organization within this elsewhere company. After all, we just saw the almost literal gold standard with the Golden Company and organization. But here, well, lots of small details that show us that while maybe not disorganized, they are disorganized compared to the Golden Company. Little things like the company steel. Archibald Ironwood wears armor that it belongs to the company and it's not good quality. Whereas the Golden Company probably has some pretty good armor on the side that no one's wearing. They probably have some good backup gear. They probably have a good supply. More importantly, language. The Golden Company seems to all speak common. There's probably other languages spoken in the company. Almost, they guarantee that's a fact. But there isn't even a united language here in the windblown, right? There's Patterned Prince gives orders in High Valyrian, and other people translate for their friends. Like everyone stands near someone that understands that. So it's it's a really different environment where it's not as smooth. Where there's less unity, there's less connectivity between its individual members. That probably impacts things like discipline. It's probably why plans like underhandedly sneaking off to join another company or can even work in the first place. I don't know that the Golden Company could pull off a thing like that, right? Because of its reputation precedes it. Big thing happening here, rumors about Danny. They're wild rumors. Some of them are related to her father, which, hey, Quentin, as a Westerosi, he didn't exactly grow up during Ares's time, but Ares was a recent thing in his lifetime. So hearing that she might be like him is definitely something to make him wary. He doesn't know better. It's not necessarily true, but it doesn't sound unreasonable as a possibility, right? It doesn't sound like an unreasonable thing that could happen. More slanders about bathing in blood, which is something said about Danelle Lofton and Shiera Seastar. Sexual rumors about her, like sleeping with lots of people and having feeding her dragons human flesh. It's the same things we can see this, the grain of truth within these stories, but we know they're wildly exaggerated or made up uh, almost entirely. New twists on these stories that apparently she killed Viserys to make herself queen, ordered Drogo to do it, really? And then killed Drogo to assume power? That is definitely not what happened. <laughs> but these are the stories being told. This is what Danny has to contend with. Lots of lies about her. And it's part of why she is the slayer of lies because in order to overcome these things said about her, she's going to have to set the record straight. She probably can't set the record straight on all of it. And some of it's going to get proven just by her presence, right? Sometimes rumors happen because... Well, they don't know you yet. They're talking about someone they've never even met. Once they meet Danny, well, hopefully the, the well isn't too poisoned and they can form their own opinion. But it sounds like Daenerys is going to, everybody's going to have made their mind up about her before she even gets there. And that's not good because most people will be not saying good things. And Varys may be at the, at the lead of that if he doesn't think that they're going to get her on their side. 
If he does think he can get her on their side, then he'll say good things about her and spread that propaganda. But I'm guessing it's going to be the other. And for Quentin, though, from a, on a personal level, this just makes the whole thing more terrifying. Like, if any of these rumors are true, like, he can, he's a, you know, not an older guy. He's smart enough to realize that this can't all be true, but he's young enough to think some of it might be, and it makes him worried, makes him intimidated. Like, I got to go try to marry this woman? Hearing that she's a little bit like Aries, true or not, it, it's a big turnoff, which of course it is. <laughs> so he's just very duty-bound here. Again, this is, has nothing to do with love. Of course, he can't love her. He's never met her. But it's a lot of burden. And there's so much misinformation he's battling along the way. And of course, he has to go through almost literal hell to get there. He thinks of Astapor. We described it like hell. It is described like hell. George is clear on it. This quote here, the Red City was the closest thing to hell he ever hoped to know. I mean, it's just blatant, right? And what he has to do there is hellish. He has to just hack young men to death. Young screaming boys who are trying to run back inside. It's really gross. And it's more of the dismantling of the hero narrative here. Quentin is on an adventure, but this is not what heroes do. You don't kill a bunch of kids, you know, in war like this and call yourself a hero. It's so bad. Rivers filled with corpses, starving children fighting over rotten food, impaled priestess fires everywhere. It is really bad. I mean, yeah, hell is a great description. The current commander of the allied forces for the Yunkai and the slavers is Yurkaz Zoyunzak, the one who eventually gets trampled in Daznak's pit. He's the same one that tells the yellow whale to have Tyrion and Penny joust. And well, that results in him getting trampled. So, well, not him. That, their jousting is not what gets him trampled because they don't actually ever get to joust, as we know. The chapter is also important for introducing some figures who will be important in, in later stories, like the yellow whale. And of course, that grotesquerie that we mentioned in the last chapter because of the mention of the two-headed person. And we also hear the, the rumor that the, the yellow whale would give a sack of gold for a new giant when he ends up buying Tyrion and Penny, <laughs> who are kind of the opposite of giants. And the girl general, we hear about her here, she's actually going to be one of the ones who appears at the slave auction and get, tries to buy Tyrion and Penny for herself before being outbid by Brown Ben Plum, who is in turn outbid by... Yazam. So we get other names thrown around. We'll talk about them later, but, you know, Lord Wobblecheeks, Pudding Face, the Clanker Lords, they'll come back. We'll mention them. We'll, we're actually going to see them in battle in Barristan's chapters of in The Winds of Winter. Despite Zaro, remember Zaro trying to scare Daenerys into accepting his bribe and, and Kavo dismissing her? He's like, oh, soon they're going to destroy her. But <laughs> mostly things are actually going Danny's way even while she's not there because so many of them are looking at each other and going, we're on the wrong side. Whether it's the second son switching and then switching back, whether it's the wind blown in this chapter, planning on switching, and then later that we see that that does happen. Barristan talks to the tattered prince off, or, or has, rather, he tells Archibald, Ironwood, and Garrus Drinkwater to go talk to the tattered prince, gives them orders, etc. And this is all between these sellsword rank and file members, they're talking about all this. They're, this is rumors going through the camp. This is what they 
This is their perspective into what's happening because they're not privy to what's happening in the command tents. They talk about the storm crows and the second suns. They're like, well, the, the second suns, those are actually dangerous. They sell swords always tend to be on the winning side because if they're losing, they switch. And so when one sellsword company sees another sellsword company switch, they understand why. They're like, well, it's probably because either they got offered a lot more money, which means that's probably coming to us too. They're probably going to offer us a lot more money also. Or they're switching sides because they see the writing on the wall and the writing on the wall says you're on the wrong side. They're left to figure this out while other people make the decisions. And here it comes, that's what makes it all so funny that, well, the people that make the decisions are going to tell them to switch sides. They're also not playing at war like this ridiculous generals. They can look at that and go, these are our allies? This is so absurd. We really don't want to rely on those guys. We really don't want that protecting our flank because it won't. <laughs> we really don't want them giving us orders because their orders will be dumb. And we do see that in Barristan's one wins a winner chapter. It looks horribly disorganized. There's in Tyrion's one wins a winner chapter. They get they're getting orders from multiple commanders that conflict with each other. All Yunkai, you know, it just it's a mess. So the sellswords were were right to be wary of fighting for the Yunkish because yes, they have numbers and money, but they do not have the skill or the will even. So it's funny, the Tattered Prince, let's talk about him for a minute. It's a bit funny that he is the opposite of what we usually get from princes, which is he left because they made him a prince. Whereas usually people like leave and sulk because they don't get made a prince. But of course, Pentos sacrifices slash executes their own princes. So it's not quite as simple. <laughs> he still wants to be Prince of Pentos. He just doesn't want to be Prince with that hanging over him. He wants it without the possibility of execution. 30 years he's been commanding his own sellsword company with enemies and ambitious underlings all around him. This guy is clever. He is capable. He is no dummy. Um, running a, a, a business like this, you don't stale again. There's no old, there are old sellswords and there are bold sellswords. There are no old, bold sellswords. What he's doing here is pretty bold. Switching sides, sending men over like that. However, he's not taking the risk himself. <laughs> That's the difference. Huge difference. He giving the bold orders to someone else, the risk is not really his. He even says that, yeah, if it doesn't go well, it's like mission impossible. If you are caught or captured, we will disavow all knowledge of your activity. So they're given an order and kind of hung out to dry like, look, you have to do this, but we're going to pretend you're traitors if you get caught. It's pretty dangerous. Like, where's their reward pay for that? <laughs> and of course, they get double screwed because when Quentin and, and Arch and Garrus switch sides, the other guys are considered suspect and get thrown in prison. And they're not too happy about that. Um, yeah, so it's interesting too to compare the Tatter Prince to Bitter Steel. They're both the guy who formed their own sellsword company and lasted a very long time commanding it. So Bitter Steel went through that whole thing a long time ago. He's been dead for 60 years. But Tata Prince is living that life still, maybe on the end run of that because he's getting up there in age. But he may have looked at Bitter Steel as a bit of an example on how to do things. I suspect a lot of aspiring sellsword captains 
at least considered the model of the Golden Company because it's, it, well, it breaks the mold and there's a lot to be said for what they did and their level of success and professionality and size, right? So a lot of people probably considered that and, and maybe adopted some of what they did to be successful. Kind of like how the Golden Company has adopted a lot of different fighting styles from around Essos to fill out their potential. Last we hear of him, indeed, it's worked, right? Let's not forget, this, is, this, is, this plan does work. In the battle, we hear that the Tattered Prince has turned, which means he would free Daria. So... If the confused news from within Barristan and Tyrion's chapters is accurate, then Dario has been rescued by the Windblown, and they'll be on Danny's side, which might mean they will uh, be with her until Pentos, because the Tattered Prince's deal was, I want Pentos. Presumably, that is what he gets. We shall see, but what, is, what will Illyrio have to say about that? <laughs> Can't help but laugh at the fact that the number of Westerosi who go Along with this plan, the ones who are sent to be double agents slash triple agents, however you want to look at it, there's 20 of them. So it's 20 good men. Well, 19 good men and one pretty Maris. I wonder about pretty Maris and some of these others, if they're going to have a role going forward. Certainly, we've talked about her before. There's a great theory about her being what Brienne would have been had the five-year gap not have existed. Certainly a tall Westerosi woman who... I was... Uh... On a panel with Joe Magician, our five-year gap panel, which is uh, here on our YouTube channel, he talks a bit about that theory, which he's uh, a fan of. Yeah, it's theory, a, that was... I say in quotes. Uh, it's it's hardly a theory for the future, exactly. It's a little different than a theory. <laughs> yeah, a theory that could have been, yeah. <laughs> and that was, that was kind of from 2019, right? I think it might have been even 2018. Okay, either way, I, yeah. I do I do recommend it. Check it out. Hugh Hungerford, sort of the anti-John Connington here. He's the one that has his fingers cut off for stealing from the war chest as paymaster. So it just shows you how differently they do business here. This guy's allowed to stay in the company and hold the rank of sergeant, even though he stole from the company. Whereas Connington was just ejected. He was, they didn't like hurt him, but they kicked him out. So it's a, definitely a different leadership style. One's like, okay, you get severe punishment, but you can stay. The other's like, no, you're out. We can't trust you anymore. So definitely a different style. So there's a little more, I think the, the bar is higher for the Golden Company, which of course we knew that already, but this is another example of how. One reason they think Pretty Maris might do well in this group is that she can level with Daenerys. Like, I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> she says, maybe Daenerys would be more likely to trust another woman. But Brie Maris is scary, right? <laughs> She's like, yikes. So I like Quentin looks at her and is like terrified. I can't even look her in the eye because her eyes are like intense and dead. So I don't know if Danny would, would look on her with any sort of special favor there. They're presenting a bunch of options. Like, well, maybe Danny will like one of these people. Uh, the Tatter Prince refers to one of his Westerosi men, uh, Weber, as nursing clams to lands lost in Westeros. And we're, that's a curiosity because that might be from House Weber, right? Probably is. Nina is, is suspicious that he's a descendant of Wendell Weber, which was Rohan's cousin. Of course, Rohan is Tywin's grandmother and a big star of the Sworn Sword. 
second Edge Knight story with Duncan Egg. Another mentioned character is Sir Orson Stone. He's one of the, the characters in the group of 20. And remember, they're coming up with reasons for their cover story. Like, why did you leave the Tattered Prince? What pissed you off about him? For Sir Orson Stone, the answer is, you dispatch, he dispatched my brother to the Sorrows. So Sir Orson Stone's brother is apparently a stone man now. I guess that's what that means, dispatched to the Sorrows. So I guess he had grayscale. Makes sense. Another interesting one, we have golden-haired Lewis Lenster. Sorry, Lanster, the company's best archer, which sounds like another one of these Lannister offshoots. There's all these, there's Lana and Lannis, lesser Lannisters. There's different versions that sound like Lannister that aren't quite the same. We get that from Marcella. Don't forget, we also have sweet Donald Hill, who is one of the best archers on the Night's Watch, and he also looks like a Lannister. It's just going around. A lot of that going around. Kago Corks Killer has a really cool sword, a Valyrian steel arrack. Man, that is cool. Uh, a little unusual, too, that he's Dothraki. And certainly, you see Dothraki here and there outside of Kalasars. I wouldn't say it's common, but it's not the first time we've seen it either. There were some, for example, in the Brave Companions. Definitely wonder about that Valyrian steel arrack. I wonder what the story behind that was. How did it get made? Maybe there was some Valyrian high lord that just thought arracks were cool and had one made and ended up with Kago many centuries later. Maybe it's an example of reforging, right? We know that Valyrian steel can't necessarily be made anymore, but it can be melted down and, and reshaped. So perhaps this is one of those. But George does like drop a few sentences on how rare this, this sword is. Uh, there's a few hundred Valyrian longswords out there, but only a few of these. So that's really cool. Okay. Lady Ardras reminds us that Doran Martell sent his son into all this. Yeah, he maybe didn't know how bad it was going to be, but he knew it would be bad. And wow, is it bad. I mean, again, hell, right? <laughs> it's hell. Ask the poor young guy. I mean, they aren't suffering the worst of it. But wow, it's bad. There are an enormous number of meta references here. Out, references outside the story, references to real history or to other books. I don't think we've ever had so many at the end of a chapter. And that is a little unusual because, again, this is a short chapter. So how do you fit so many anecdotes into one chapter? Well, let's see. First of all, the heron anecdote where Archibald talks about herons being craven birds. That is a reference to the Accursed Kings. Again, we've had so many references to the Accursed Kings by Maurice Truon, which you can find for sale on our website if you're finally ready to dive into it now that we've recommended it 30-some times. Maybe this 31st time will get you into it. <laughs> it's really good. And it's a similar quote talking about herons being cowardly and stuff like that. But Anita's pretty sure that it's also borrowed from elsewhere, that it doesn't actually originate with the Accursed Kings, that it's somewhere from, somewhere from another reference that we just aren't able to figure out on our own. Just the way it's written, it, it feels like meta, meta, like Maurice Truon borrowed it from somewhere else. I think a lot of you caught this next one, which is, I said real unsullied. Hacking off some boy's stones with a butcher's cleaver and handing him a pointy hat don't make him unsullied. That dragon queen's got the real item, the kind that don't break and run when you fart in their general direction. Clearly Monty Python reference there. That is straight from the whole Monty Python and the Holy Grail. John Cleese's character, who is a French knight, says, I fart in your general direction. 
and he calls them silly English kniggets. Archmaester Rennie, who is reading the book on the iBooks edition, every once in a while gives us a great take from the iBook. The iBook in this case refers to Maggoty Corpse of Cleon strapped to his horse. There's a legend that that really happened. This Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar, who was an amazing general, and there's a legend that he they strapped his body to his saddle and it led, they used it to lead a knightly charge. Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar is better known by the name El Cid. You may have heard of El Cid. And in fact, El Cid is famous for his role in the, El Con, in the Reconquista, which was the Spanish retaking of Spain from the Moors, the Muslim invaders from Africa. And that, of course, the, the Moorish occupation of Spain was several hundred years. Another familiar element here is the story of El Cid is recounted in the very famous Song of El Cid, which begins with him being exiled because he was unjustly accused of stealing money from the king. <laughs> wow, that fits in a lot of ways, doesn't it? And I really wonder about this character, this Denzo Don character, who's the warrior bard. There's so little about him other than he's a veteran and he's the second most or tied for second most important captain behind the, sh uh, the Tattered Prince. I hope we learn more about him. That's pretty cool. And I ha have to wonder if his inclusion isn't related to this, this thing about the Song of El Cid and all that. But that's just a random thought from me here. Stefan B. points out some more Iliad vibes. We've had a lot of vibes from the Iliad. We're going to have more. The line, Sir Lucifer is still seething over that slave girl Kago took from him. That is a huge part of the basis of the fight between Agamemnon and Achilles over the slave girl uh, oh, shoot, I'm sure it's a B or an H. It's driving me crazy. Oh, uh, is it? I don't know how to say this, so I really don't want to say it. Is it Kairos? Okay. No, Briseis. Briseis, the then. It's, they're saying Chryseis is probably what they're trying to say. Yes. It's Briseis, I think, is the right name. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, thank you, chat. You are awesome. Briseis is who I was trying to think of. That was me. Oh, you looked it up? Yeah. Well, thank you, Ashea. <laughs> <laughs> From Allison Howland. During the early stages of Arabia's rapid expansion circa 633 AD, the Rashidun Caliphate decided to take territory from the Persian Sassanid Empire to the north. The opening battle is called the Battle of Chains. It's a dramatic story of a clash between the volunteer Muslim army led by Khalid ibn Walid, probably the best general of his era, against a Persian army whose generals had their soldiers link themselves together in chains to show they were ready to die rather than run. Of course, they ran and died, just like the sellswords made fun of the clanker lords for that same expectation. <laughs> so, yeah, another reference. Pretty, pretty cool. Jonathan Hagee says, the Valyrian Arak could have been made in Kohar to placate a Kalisar. Ooh, yeah, as a gift. Yeah, that's a great idea because it's very common for the Kalisars to show up and get gifts in lieu of, you know, being attacked or launching an attack. That's a great call. I like that theory, Jonathan Hagee. And Decel says Dothraki might have had a cohoric blacksmith or slave blacksmith to reforge into a Valyrian steel Iraq. Also a good call because Kohor is the heart of the Valyrian steel knowledge. That's where apparently the most remnants of Valyrian steel knowledge is. 
Tabo Mott, the one who reforges ice, is Kohorik. And there's a story in the world of ice and fire about a maester who spent a lot of time there trying to learn the secrets of Valyrian steel. And he ran into some trouble digging deep there. They didn't kill him, but I think he lost his hand or something. And he did not learn all of what he wanted. Okay. Onward. The Wayward Bride, Asha Greyjoy versus Middle Little, a.k.a. the one where Stannis ambushes the Ironborn again. It's the second longest chapter in the book, covering a good bit of action, a few recent flashbacks, and some longer-term ones, including some very important historical anecdotes. A favorite around these parts, of course. We love the historical anecdotes, and there's a lot in this one. These have been Asha chapters, that is, gold mines for Song of Ice and Fire history. They are the longest chapters in the book. Asha chapter has three and they have the longest average. It's only her second ever chapter. In that first one, we got the reader. So it is fun that Ironborn chapters are such a source of history. We haven't seen her since the King's Moot, so there's definitely some catching up to take care of here. All the more perfect that one of the many flashbacks slash historical anecdotes we get in this chapter involves another King's Moot. The historical depth is substantial here. And it's not just recent or even ancient history. We got ultra ancient history reflected here. There's a lot about the children, nature's revenge, things like that. And there's horns. Horns, many horns and things like horns. We love horns. Horns are important. We're real horny. (laughs) The plot plays out fairly straightforwardly as far as the structure of the chapter. It's, wouldn't say it's the most complicated chapter ever. And I think it probably doesn't stand out that much to first time readers. But the second time through, Oh, man. Maybe I'm underestimating the moonlight flight to the ships, the battle in the woods. Those are pretty unique things. Maybe a lot of people really got super into that. I mean, I think they're cool. What I'm getting at is there's a really, really rich amount of subtext and symbolism and themes here that are pretty darn hard to catch the first time because you're not even sure what you're looking for. But this one is rich. I love this chapter. It's super great. And it starts... Fittingly, an Ironborn chapter with a very Ironborn line. Asha Greyjoy was seated in Galbart Glover's long haul, drinking Galbart Glover's wine, when Galbart Glover's maester brought the letter to her. But it's not just an Ironborn line. Yes, it's talking about all these different things she's taken. She's made hers. But it's also a sign of how much he does not belong. And that vibe is overwhelming in this chapter. It's relentless. All the different ways George writes this chapter in a way to tell us and her that she does not belong. And the way that line is written too, it captures how everything has been captured. And at the end of the chapter, she's the one captured. Her next chapter is called The King's Prize. On top of her value as a hostage, she has an insurance policy in the form of the Glover children all the way back on the Iron Islands. She has them stashed at Harlaw Hill. Harlaw Hall, that is. To be clear, they are not Galbart's children. He is not married and has no children. A popular theory is that he's a widower. The children that Asha has back on Harlaw are Robit Glover's children. The, the Glover at White Harbor with Davos and, Manderley, and Wyman Manderley. With regards to this letter mentioned, the one that she receives, the one from Ramsey, it's the same letter John receives in his next chapter, which is John 6, giving us a sense that those two chapters, or this one and that one, are 
lined up chronologically because the Ravens would probably get to those castles roughly at the same time and they were almost certainly sent at the same time. And right after John 6 is Davos 4, where we hear from Robert Glover that Stannis has retaken this castle that we're currently seeing Asha in that she leaves halfway through. It's news to Davos at the time, but we see it firsthand here. And to wrap all that up, the letter that Ramsay has sent around is written in the blood of the men who surrendered to Theon, those 63 at Mo Cayley. The feel in that opening line is repeated elsewhere in the chapter, such as, Iron men were leading horses from Dalbart Glover's stables. Again, another reminder that it's not their place. They're squids in the forest. <laughs> this is a northern seat for Northmen. The one commando that she captures and tortures, because he's already got a spear through him, says, it would be Galbart Glover's seat. No home for squids. Again, relentless reminding that this is no place for a Greyjoy, no place for a squid, no place for a, sea, a sailor. Joe writes, it just feels wrong. The same way the Starks end up missing snow and the winds that they're used to, little details like that, like a lot of that comes from Sansa. She's the one that maybe captures that feel the most. Similar here to Asha, the air is wrong. The ground is wrong. She feels wrong. Loud and clear. It's straightforward and it's symbolic. The, rec the rejection of Asha and her people by the very land itself. And this notion really peaks with the idea that the hill clansmen are literally covered in leaves and branches. They are the land. <laughs> and here they come to attack. The woods were on the move creeping toward the castle like a slow green tide. She thought back to a tale she had heard as a child about the children of the forest and their battles with the first men when the green seers turned the trees to warriors. In those tales, the first men were the invaders. They were the ones in an alien land where things were not the way they had been used to for generations and generations. The children were fighting to hold on to what had been theirs for ages eons. Asha speaks of making this place hers, but this wooden castle, Deepwood Mott, has been in Glover hands for ages. Now, eventually, the first men won out, and perhaps the revenge of the children in the form of the others will reclaim it again. If not, either way, the point is, these things take time. This has been northern territory for eons. and Before that, it was territory of the children of the forest. Boat neither relinquished that hold easily, not just because of some tough people moving in and, and squatting on the land. That's not enough to convert it. You can take it, but you can't make it yours just by standing on it and holding it. The very land itself does not belong to them, even though they wield the weapons, they hold the castle. The moon is mentioned a lot in this chapter. It adds to that feel of them being watched by higher powers. And she thinks on how the Northmen clearly know the area better than she does, which would have also been true eons before when it was the children versus the, the, the first men. They knew the woods extremely well, whereas the first men were just adapting to them, having not lived there for countless generations. Then there's lines like this, which really send the message of, of these ancient echoes of of how they're refighting battles that have been fought before with modern analogs. 
quote, as if the trees were whispering to one another in some language that she could not understand. Yeah, like true tongue or the rustling that we associate with the speech of the children and with the green seers. She also thinks that the Northmen howl like wolves. And when the children fought the first men, who do you think the wolves were fighting for? Not the first men. They hadn't developed all their skin changing yet at that point, I would think. But the children had been doing that forever. So any green seers on the children's side, the wolves would have been with them, howling in a similar manner, probably. Before that, Asha thinks how she's growing to hate the sound of horns, thanks to the hell horn at the king's moot. Well, she's in the wrong chapter. There's a lot of horns. <laughs> Speaking of the others, for two reasons, right? The revenge of nature and horn blasts. Well, Hagen blew three short blasts in quick succession, the signal that would send the ironborn back to their ships. Now, we can't go, go around analyzing A Song of Ice and Fire and skip three horn blasts now, can we? That is halt. Halt and examine. Whenever you see three horn blasts, you got to take a look. In this case, not only is it a signal for them to leave, which is kind of the opposite. It's usually a sign to arrive, what we're used to. But a moment later, we hear that attackers are at the gate with a ram, which is, of course, a weapon made from a tree. And then we get this Sneaky good line is follow-up. Which gate? Asha asked, mounting up. The north. From beyond Deepwood's mossy wooden walls came the sudden sound of trumpets. Trumpets? Wolves with trumpets? That was wrong, but Asha had no time to ponder it. Well, of course it's trumpets because it's Stannis' army, a southern army, not a northern one. And then we get this line, sort of, it's a little while later, but it really works as an immediate follow-up. Quote, There are no trumpets in the drowned gods' watery halls. Below the waves, the merlings hail their lord by flowing into seashells. She dreamt of red hearts burning and a black stag in a golden wood with flames streaming from his antlers. Which is also how the chapter ends. That's like the last line. It's a neat way for R'hllor to come in and take over after all these other symbolic representations have had their time to shine in the chapter. But Stannis is not Azor Ahai. He is savior to the Glovers at the moment, at least. To Asha, it doesn't really mean anything in, in that sense. She doesn't know that much about Stannis. She's about to learn. She's about to watch him burn people. He, she's going to learn a lot. But at this point, this is very new to her. R'hllor is just a name to her. Stannis is Northern Campaign has really begun with this. This is the start of it. The mountain clans are there with him. So that's clearly succeeded. Uh, and it fits for him to go to Deepwood Mott. Not only did John say, look, go to collect these hill clansmen. That's the best way to add your army. Well, most of those hills and those mountains where these people live are in the general direction of Deepwood Mott anyway. So it really just made a ton of sense for Stannis to go that direction. If Asha had known that, she might have had a different plan in the first place. But again, a recurring theme of this chapter is not only Asha having unfamiliarity with the land and the territory, but she doesn't even know the names of half the Northern Lords. She thinks at one point, she's like, wait, now who rules Barrowton again? So it's like just very unprepared with these basic sort of things that you would expect to know going into a campaign. You would know, you want to know who you're dealing with. Like people like Stannis and Tywin and, and even Rob, Blackfish, young or older, they, they know how important it is to realize who's commanding the other side taking their personality into account. Like, is it Coward? Is it Robert Baratheon who's going to lead from the front? Like, these are important details, and Asha just doesn't even 
have a clue like who it is. Is part of this is this ironborn arrogance. Like it doesn't matter. We fight no matter what. It doesn't change our plans. Like worrying about who the enemy commander is is cowardice. Like no, it's just good sense. But that is sort of ironborn attitude about these things. And Asha's smarter than the average ironborn by a lot. But these remnants of ironborn culture still are with, with her. For example, she is the one who talks sense to Theon. Right? She's the one who marches down from this castle in a clash of kings, to tell Theon, look, bro, you are gonna die if you stay here. And he's like, you're just trying to get me away from my castle. Now, Asha doesn't think of it that way, like, oh, they're just trying to, they have an ulterior motive here. But when Triss says, yo, Asha, Moat Kalen fell. We got that news. That means Roose Bolton's army is in the north again, and he's got a f- several thousand men we got to go. And she's like, no, death is certain, but I don't run. Like, this sounds like Theon. You were smart to tell Theon to leave, but now you're acting like him. It's even similar in that Maester Lewin's like, hey, Theon, let me negotiate a surrender for you. This Maester does the same thing. He's like, let me negotiate a surrender for you. You'll get ransomed, etc. Theon's case, someone shows up to tell him, hey, you know, be smart about this. In Theon's case, that someone was Asha. In Asha's case, that someone is Triss. And, well, she doesn't take Triss that seriously, but mm, maybe she should take him a little more seriously. He's definitely more capable than she first gives him credit for. This chapter gives us some evidence of that, and he's clearly right, and he's smart to keep pushing her. He doesn't give up when she says no. Continuing the Theon parallel, uh, Nina notices that Asha sleeps in Galbert Glover's bed and has sex in it with with Carl, which is kind of like Theon having sex with Kyra, of course, those relationships are very different. She points out that as well. Carl and Asha have been together a while, six years. They, uh, even though it kind of starts off violent, it's, well, that's just clearly their kink. You, you learn pretty quickly. Whereas Kyra was not consenting to what Theon was doing to her. So in that sense, it's very different. Asha's much more reasonable than Theon. She's actually able to be convinced. So yes, she's got that stubbornness, but beneath it all, logic wins out. She doesn't have this emotional connection to Deepwood that Theon had to Winterfell either. It's, you know, Theon wanted to be a Stark. Asha's never like, I really want to be a Glover. It's not quite the same. Also, lucky for her, Theon was captured by Ramsay. Much, much better to be captured by Theon. I mean, by Stannis. Far preferable. I don't need to explain why. Ramsay killed off all of Theon's people except Wex, who managed to hide. And as we'll see in Davos 4, well, that's going to be very important. But Stannis actually captures a few of Asha's alive. And the two most important of those are Triss and Carl the Maid. And they may continue to be important going forward. It's unclear, but there's certainly some character development for them. Part of one of the many flashbacks is a recent one where Asha thinks about meeting Carl and you know their relationship to date. Trading together, going down to Lannisport, Iron Island, you know, all that stuff. And Joe says, imagine a Westeros where you can just sail from the Iron Islands to Lannisport and then head over to Old Town just because you want some peaches. <laughs> like, yeah, I guess Westeros used to be a little more peaceful, didn't it? It wasn't that long ago. So Asha relives that and, and kind of thinks about how that would be nice to go back to that. It's also kind of neat how there's some different relationship roles being shown here. She's the spoon <laughs> when they're lying in bed. Um, he doesn't have a beard. <laughs> That's interesting too. Uh, things like that. 
it's just another set of, of factors for Asha showing that she's a little different, a little stronger, and all the more so rising to this level with, among the Ironborn is impressive. And it's neat to have her be a little bit vulnerable. She really does like Carl, and we don't get this sort of warm relationship moment. It's a strange place to find it within the Ironborn. Again, just like you wouldn't expect to get this awesome ancient history from Ironborn chapters, we actually get a reasonably functional relationship that's lasted for a while, which faces a lot of the same issues so many relationships in this world face, which is there's a big social disconnection in terms of their status. It's a bit similar to Dario and Danny. Dario and Danny don't have history going back a long time, but it's excellent fighters. The woman is the higher-born person. She's kind of she's got a lot more control, but the birth status is a big deal. It prevents the relationship from like being a marriage or what have you. And another thing they both have in common, Carl and Dario both end up as hostages. <laughs> and apparently they both get out. Like we know, as we saw, as we talked about in the windblown chapter. Looks like Dario is set free by the windblown, and Carl is set free by, of all people, Tycho Nestoris. How random, <laughs> but cool. Now, Quentin Martell offers Danny help with her crown, and Triss does the same for Asha, though in a very different way. They both want marriage, but Triss gives a history lesson while Quentin offers Dorn. What's funny is how the history lesson is, is more, seems to be more valuable than Dorn at this point. That will probably change, but still. The history lesson is pretty important. It's a pathway to the Seastone chair, maybe. And it's the final push. This argument, this point, is the final thing that gets Asha realizing that, okay, I do have a reason to live. I shouldn't make a last stand. Let's go. The story begins with Urathon, good brother, winning the king's moot and proceeding to piss everyone off by ruling badly, giving him the nickname Bad Brother. But a son of the former king had missed out on the king's moot, having been gone for years. Asha remembered now. Torgan came home. And said the king's moot was unlawful since he had not been there to make his claim. Bad brother had proved to be as mean as he was cruel and had few friends left upon the isles. The priests denounced him. The lords rose against him and his own captains hacked him into pieces. Torgon, the latecomer, became the king and ruled for 40 years. Okay, it's not hard to imagine Euron wearing out his welcome. Men were abandoned at Moat Kalen here. Soon enough, the Shield Islands as well. So he's been hard on the drowned priest too. Not just Aaron, which is similar to the priest announcing Urathon. So there's a lot of similarities there. So he's made a few enemies and you don't have to squint to see where more might come from. But they're thrilled with him overall for the time being. Most of the Ironborn currently are like, whoa, Euron's the best king we've ever had ever. But obviously, Theon was not there for the king's mood, so you can see how this similar aspect could play out. He had the best claim going in. Under proper circumstances, you could see the same thing replaying. Secondly, there's a very similar detail in that the people who called the king's mood expected their claimants to win and were surprised when Eurathon did. Aaron Damphair thought Victorian would win and thought Euron would lose. And of course... That's the opposite of what happened. So he sort of hoisted himself by his own petard. Thirdly, consider how well the names line up. We have Torgon Greyiron versus Theon Greyjoy. Now we have Ur Urathon versus Euron. 
Bad Brother was his last name, Urathon Bad Brother. Now, who's a worse brother than Euron? We later learn Euron's killed three of his brothers. And think of that in light of this exchange from Triss and Asha. I think the damp hair's dead. I think the crow's eyes slit his throat for him. Ironmaker's search is just to make us believe the priest escaped. Euron is afraid to be seen as a kinslayer. Never let my nuncle hear you say that. Tell the crow's eye he's afraid of kinslaying and he'll murder one of his own sons just to prove you wrong. So Triss is doubly right here. Euron is pretending to search for Aaron and knows exactly where he is, strapped to the prow of his ship. He's not technically dead, but it looks like he's about to be. So all this is a pathway to the Seastone Chair through Theon. If Euron's kinslaying becomes public knowledge, it could hurt his reputation. Now, it'll take a lot more than that to dethrone the crow's eye, but this could be part of it. That said, there's some problems with the idea that Theon could replay the history of Torgon the Latecomer. He's an even less impressive figure than the 90-year-old Eric Ironmaker who couldn't stand up, the one who was married to Asha by proxy, seal proxy, that is, that is described in this chapter. Nina adds to this doubt here. Torgon became the first king of the United Iron Islands to rule without being chosen at a king's moot, and when he died, he was succeeded not by a candidate chosen at a king's moot, but by his own son, Uragon. Uragon, in turn, was succeeded by his great-nephew, Euron Redhand, who had all the Kingsmoot candidates slaughtered and proclaimed the Grey Irons the hereditary ruling dynasty. That doesn't sound like Theon at all. It sounds like Euron. In fact, the name is, it's, it's not spelled the same as Euron. It's Uron, like U-R-R-O-N. But still, this is the guy that, that the reader had mentioned. He loosed his axemen and Naga's ribs ran red with gore. Asha gets this message, this lesson at the same time that she's still thinking about how she can be a queen. She's still stuck on the notion that she can make this work, whether it's carving out, getting the iron, getting the seastone chair back somehow, or establishing a kingdom at Sea Dragon Point. She's still very married to this idea, even though it does, does not look good. But I wonder if there isn't a pathway to it in the long run. When all is said and done, maybe. And we can joke that if some of the Ironborn are related to the Deep Ones, then Asha is a Selkie here because those are the ones that can change into seals. And she was just married by proxy as a seal. Of course, I don't actually think she's one. That's why it's a joke. But it's in reference to that. And it's funny that this is a thing. Like proxy marriages are just a weird thing in the first place. Nina notes that it's a little odd this is the only one we hear of. A little more on that in a minute. But the second historical anecdote that's a major feature of this chapter is Dagon Greyjoy, named so fondly remembered that we've already seen several Dagons, one of them in Reek 2 at Moat Kaelin, and another one right here. We had Dagon Cod at Moat Kaelin. We have Dagon the Drunkard here, who is a different Dagon Greyjoy, uh, you know, a descendant, one of, this is Asha's cousin. And there are two ships in the Iron Fleet named after Dagon. And we're going to hear him mentioned again in one of Victorian's chapters later this book. So, very interesting person to cite given his historical connection to Bloodraven. Dagon famously defeated both Starks and Lannisters for a while until the crown finally intervened and that was at last too much for him. Bloodraven was hand and more concerned with Bittersteel crossing the narrow sea again, thus he was unwilling to send ships over to the other side of the continent until he absolutely had to. Lord Baron Stark was slain thanks to Dagon's incursions, which led to the so-called She-Wolves of Winterfell situation. Baron was the father of Donner Stark, 
and Willem and Artos the Implacable. Willem, of course, is Ned's great-grandfather. And in the Lannister case, it was Tybalt Lannister who was lord for this. His brother, Gerald Lannister, inherited after him. Gerald married Rohan Weber, and that's Tywin's grandparents. Dagon is Asha's great-great-grandfather. This Eric Ironmaker, who she married by proxy, claims to have sailed with Dagon. As we pointed out back in the Kingsmood chapter, he might be exaggerating, but we have heard of very, very young Ironborn sailors before. Either way, with Dagon, it's one of these cases where George mentions this character so many times and in so many ways that it's a near certainty to matter. Most likely, I would guess that it's Euron who's going to replay a lot of that history. Like my shirt says, don't make me repeat myself. Especially not this history. You don't want Euron repeating anyone's history. He's not going to pick the good history to repeat. But the first of those parallels could be that the last Ironborn king, well, Dagon technically wasn't a king. The last Ironborn ruler to attack the Reach was him. And now Euron is the next one. That said, as a comparison to Euron, there's one flaw. Not a flaw, but something else to keep in mind. Across Valar Reredus, we are, of course, very, very quick to examine the historical anecdotes that we run across during these chapters. And we've associated several ancient Ironborn figures with Euron. It's almost like he's the avatar of Ironborn, like he's just all the different spirits of many of the great Ironborn over time are coming together into one character. It's like Serpentor in the G.I. Joe world. <laughs> he was a combination of the DNA of Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. <laughs> so he's certainly evil and clever enough, this guy, <laughs> Euron is. I don't think he's a genetic monster, but he is a monster. The Hornblasts interrupt the history talk. So we get two familiar George R. R. Martin devices, the interruption of lore and horns, especially three blasts of horns. Now, again, the persistent notion that the others were a creation of the children, it fits so well, the theme of nature's revenge, especially because it is the thing that kicks off the action in this chapter. I wonder if some of Stannis' men felt this too, this whole nature thing going on around them, like something is weird about this. They might be thankful that they're on the right side here, that the nature is on their side. Now, speaking of catastrophes like three horn blasts and Euron Greyjoy, the march towards lack of food security continues in dangerous, but in this case, subtle fashion. It's very casually mentioned here, but just as ominous as it is elsewhere. To east and west were empty fields. Oats and barley had been growing there when Asha took the castle, only to be crushed underfoot during her attack. A series of hard frosts had killed the crops they'd planted afterward, leaving only mud and ash and wilted, rotting stalks. That is very ominous. War in winter can be fatal to a region, and that was just one battle. It may be what happened to the place Asha fantasizes about making into a new kingdom, Sea Dragon Point. Sea Dragon Point had not always been as thinly peopled as it was now. Old ruins could still be found amongst its hills and bogs, the remains of ancient strongholds of the first men. In the high places, there were werewood circles left by the children of the forest. Werewood circles, are these trees cut down or not? I guess not, but maybe. Either way, there's these incredible vibes of all these ancient beings and things 
and straight up mentions of them too. It's not just the vibes, but here we're just flat out talking about them. The ancient world shadows this chapter throughout. I wonder if what happened to these ancient strongholds, these ruins, it, it says is not always as thinly peopled as it was now. Well, that's interesting. In ancient times, there were more people there. Hmm. So it was more developed. The farmlands were better. I wonder if it wasn't some series of battles that wrecked it and made it uninhabitable again. Like whatever progress had been made was lost. And that's why Asha is finding it as a place that has some potential because it did rise to a much greater level some long time ago. It's interesting, this notion that maybe there'll be someone that goes here at the end of the story. When A Song of Ice and Fire is wrapping up, that maybe someone takes this new, takes this place on as a project to develop it or something like that. But it's really neat. I love the idea of these ancient places, the first men's first places that they lived. And maybe winter came and wiped them out. These battles, they crushed the oats and barley beneath their feet, as Asha did here. Maybe they're replaying the same results of ancient battles from long ago when these two sides fought. And there was really no winner because winter destroyed them all. In terms of the, the battle, I'm going to take cues from Joe here on this. He says, George really knows how to get the blood flowing, doesn't he? He continues the theme of excitement by almost attaching us for a paragraph of chilling overview about how this is no movie script. There's no glory or beauty in this fight. Nothing cinematic. Certainly not easy as riding through a broken enemy like Quentin. Right? Quentin was just hacking and slashing to the point where his arm was getting tired from all the killing, even though he wasn't using any skill. This is skill and suffering and panicked and crazy. A pure fight for life with neither side being prepared to give that up. Near darkness, where you're as likely to trip as you are to fight a duel, you might think you're going to stab a person and oops, so that was a tree. <laughs> and well, the people being dressed like trees is part of why that's confusing. And it's nice to see that Asha really is as good a fighter as she's been made out to be. She is quite skilled. There's really nothing like this fight. Like I said at the beginning, I'm not sure how much it stands out to some people. I'm not sure how much some readers noticed all the differences about it, how unique this battle was, or whether that was a, something that was super memorable or not. I am moved by trying to put myself in that perspective and be like, what would it be like to be fighting a battle that you can, you can hardly see what's happening around you? You'd have to have built up some bravery over the years or be naturally brave to be able to handle a situation like that. Also, too, if we look back on Asha's plans and her stubbornness over this kingdom and thinking it would work, it's all falling apart. Like the things that she said would work are not working right in front of us here. She talked about having the Northmen as friends to stand against the Iron Throne. But again, she doesn't even know who these people are. She doesn't know their names. She doesn't know the ruler of Baratin. How can you have peace with people whose names you don't even know, who think of you as enemies? She just isn't realizing how much bitterness there is towards her kind. And that's something that she'll learn a little more of when she has some time in Stannis' camp and talks to the Mormonts. Mage Mormont tells her that her people are tough in part because of the Ironborn, and Asha has to think about that. She's like, yeah, tough but fair. So Asha isn't stupid, but it shows how misguided some of her thoughts were, how uh, dreamy her 
notions of working together with the Northmen are. Maybe that can be done. Maybe it could be it could work in the long run, but it will take a lot of work and rebuilding of trust that has never really been there. So she isn't properly framing the challenges. And she also probably still holds a little too much of regard for her father. She thinks that Balon would never have allowed the moat to fall. He knew it was the key to holding the North. Well, yeah, but he was never going to hold the North in the first place. We've been over that ad nauseum. This plan to hold the North was never going to work. Yes, Moat Kalen was the key to it. But <laughs> it's like you got the key, but there's a bunch of people living in the house already that you have the key to, and they don't want you there. <laughs> so, yeah, you can open the door, but the people, the, the, the natives are hostile to you. What good does that do? So... Yeah, this is just more wishful thinking on Asha's part. But again, she's learning why, and she's unlike a lot of people, she may actually have a second chance at some of this stuff. It's funny, too, that she considers offering herself sexually to Stannis, and then she's like, well, nah, we're both married. <laughs> but also, we know it wouldn't have worked because Stannis just isn't like that, but it's kind of funny. And Cersei contemplates a similar tactic with Stannis. It's like both Cersei and Asha had the same thought about, maybe I could offer myself to him. And then they're both like, nah. Let's talk about a few references here. Shakespeare comes up here. I'm, I'm glad for, I'm glad anytime someone points out a Shakespeare reference, this was Nina's catch. Because as I've said before, that is a blind spot I have. I don't know Shakespeare very well. A lot of these references I, I can catch. Not these. She says that Macbeth, it's prophesied to Macbeth that Macbeth shall never Vanquish be until great Burnham Wood to hide Dunsinane Hill shall come against him, which actually happens. The soldiers of Malcolm's army hold branches in front of them to disguise themselves and make it difficult for Macbeth to see their numbers. So you've got this similar approach that the mountain clans are taking using branches to disguise their approach and be like they're part of the landscape itself. Nice catch. One that I bet a lot of y'all caught was the Lord of the Rings reference here. The character of Grim Tongue, a character who shouts out the number of men he's killed, very similar to Gimli and Legolas in both the books and movies of Lord of the Rings. What you may not have caught is the name Grim Tongue might be a play on Grima Wormtongue, another character from Lord of the Rings. And of course, if you remove the, the phrase a worm from Grima Wormtongue, you get Grim Tongue. So. Maybe that's coincidence, but it sure is smooth. Like Grim Tongue to Grim a Worm Tongue by removing a worm. That's really perfect. And this guy is actually still alive, too. He's one of the ones that escaped or that was captured with Carl and Triss. And he's one of the ones Tycho Nestoris, the banker, uses as escort, which is another bit of a funny joke, a little irony. Asha thinks. When she's looking for an escape route, she, she's told that she'll be ransomed and her men will be unharmed. She's like, yeah, right. That's never how that works. I'll be ransomed, but they'll kill my men. Actually, that's backwards. <laughs> she was not wrong to think that, but it turns out that she stays captured. No one ransoms her, while her men are ransomed by, again, Tycho Nestoris, the, the Iron Banker. <laughs> so that's pretty funny. A lot of you all cited the sex scene, not to criticize or comment on it, but just how many of you who listen on the audio and how it was awkward listening to that scene with other people around. <laughs> 
And well, yeah, I feel for you there. That does seem a little awkward. Like, wait, let me turn that off. Hang on. Uh, yeah. I'm like, what are you listening to? That is intense. And well, that's it for this week. That was a really fun three-chapter week this time. Fun batch of unusual chapters with their own cool, unusual titles. And all these new POVs. I just am really in love with all the vibes from the super ancient world in this Asa chapter. And part of the reason is I really don't think I honed in on that nearly as much on prior reads, something I sort of was dimly aware of. But really focusing on it this time, I was like, wow. It's like every third paragraph, there's something you can relate to first men versus children. Like you can flash back 8,000 years and it feels really similar. So I just really like that. I love when George captures that so well. But he, he, in this case, he does it, he's done it in so many ways. It's like they, the way they're fighting, even Asha, even the way the battle is described. Like Asha is smoothly moving around. She's dancing like a wood dancer. Like she's quick and energetic and hard to pin down. But by the end of the battle, it says she's holding a short sword that's like a cleaver and she doesn't even know how she got there. It's very symbolic. Like this war has raged on so long that it's no longer about ideological reasons. It's about survival. It's just slaughter. And that's why it's described as the butcher's cleaver. And she's no longer running around and moving and dodging. She's just like standing there and killing. And that to me is like the long term of the children of the forest and the, and the first men fighting each other because there's just no end in sight and no way for there to be any peace between these two groups, which might be the way it is for the ironborn in the north. They may never get along. So I just think that's really Anyway, last week, we covered 161 minutes and five seconds. This week, it was 134.51. We are now past the 1,000-minute mark of what's almost 3,000 minutes in the book. We are 36% of the way through, so just past the one-third of the way mark. I guess we crossed that roughly in the first chapter today. As usual, you can check the video, compare it to the edited podcast version, see how much difference there is. Usually it's about 10, 15 minutes, sometimes as much as 20, 25. Don't forget to click like on the video if you're watching or leave us a review and or rating on iTunes or Podbean or uh, Spotify, Anchor, Overcast, um, there's so many podcast outlets these days, but they all end up sending these ratings based at the same place. And they all end up helping trigger the algorithms that help other people find us. As always, though, the best way to support the show is word of mouth. Tell your friends how much fun you have listening to History of Westeros, and you may create a new listener and a new person to chat Song of Ice and Fire. As usual, we like to mention episodes that we talked about uh, in this episode that we cited, meaning other scripted episodes or other live streams we've done in the past that expand on topics that we covered today. Bitter Steel was mentioned. That's the fifth episode of the Blackfire Rebellion series. The Golden Company is the one right after it, number six. We also talked about the Maylis, the monstrous War of Nine Penny Kings live streams that we did with Stephen Atwell this year, 2020, early this year. And those are fun too. We also mentioned the five-year gap episode, which was a uh, panel at Con of Thrones, and we have recordings of that, and that is also both available on YouTube and our podcast feeds. 
Next week, we also have three chapters since we are starting off with the actual longest chapter in the book, the over 66-minute Tyrion 7, the one with Benero and the widow of the waterfront of Volantis, a.k.a. the smallest man casts the largest chapter. John 6, a vision of Arya is a vision of Alice, a.k.a. a duel with Rattleshirt is a duel with Mance. And Davos for the one where the North remembers, a.k.a. pack your bagos for Skagos, Davos. I truly apologize for that joke. <laughs> no, I don't, actually. I don't truly apologize. I uh, fully take ownership of how horrible it is, and I enjoy when you cringe at my bad jokes. <laughs> Thanks to everyone who came and watched live and left comments and participated in the group chat. I really appreciate how many people show up and have a good time. It means a lot to us that we can do something on the regular that people can enjoy and have as a part of their regular almost every week. Thanks to Joe and Nina for their contributions. Thanks to Ashea for managing so much at once. A veritable kraken over there, as I like to say occasionally. Thank you to our mods on Facebook. You guys do a fantastic job posting all the chapters on time, posting the discussions, many of which we uh, consider when writing the episode every week. Thanks to everyone who participates on Flick and Slack and Discord as well. Thanks to Sir Slorp for being our Discord uh, host over there, or um, admin. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld, aka Claradox.de, for the maps and the video intro and for just being an all-around great guy. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Veritas intro music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for our regular History of Westeros intro and outro music. Thanks to the Benjineer for his sound quality assistance. He is our audio engineer. Thanks to our many patrons who make the show possible financially, especially with harder times like this. We are even more appreciative of our the fact that we can do this for a living day in and day out, working on our favorite series. That is such a privilege. We are eternally thankful for that. And if you want to join Patreon, head over to patreon.com slash historyofwestros. Find the level that's right for you. Check out all the different benefits we offer, like bonus episodes, scripts, things like that. And uh, we'll see you later. Go to Here Be Dragons. As usual, we shout Here Be Dragons out at the end of every episode. This week, it's an I Know That Nerd episode, which is sort of like um, a get-to-know-you interview sort of AMA style. This time, the guest is our very own Amy Blackfire, good friend of the show, an all-around interesting person. So check that out. Starts in about, well, about 15 minutes from now. If you're catching the podcast version of this, well, you can always head over to the Here Be Dragons YouTube channel and catch the replay. Until next week, everybody. Well, are we read us?